What's Robert De Niro waiting for, Amanda? You didn't know, Rich? It's our 80s flashback cafe on Bananarama. Bananarama? Amanda, that's a fantastic plan. Oh, oh no. no, it's, it's Prague, Prague John. John. No, Bananarama. It's time for some drama. And I've brought a friend. It's Prague Prague Dave. Dave. Oh, yes, it's Prague Dave. And I wrote the book on Prague. With two of us, shall we do two Yes albums? We shall. Let us sing to celebrate. I've seen all good people turn their heads each day. So satisfied this is discord and rhyme. Silly human race, and welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. We're on both Twitter and Instagram at Discord Pod, and you can find show notes and our full episode archive at DiscordPod.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and just generally where podcasts are found. And you can also subscribe by email at DiscordPod.com/slash contact. I'm Rich Bennell, and I'm here with Phil Maddox, John McFerrin, Amanda Rogers, and special guest Dave Weigel. Dave is back. He talked about Todd Rundgren with us last fall, but we wanted to have him back for a Prague episode because he wrote a Prague book, the show that never ends, The Rise and Fall of Prague Rock. How's it going, Dave? It's good. I, I really like talking about this book and this music, and uh, this is coming at the end of the day that uh, uh, included me talking to the Trump Super PAC about their re-election strategy. So just, you know, slightly different change of, change of pace tonight. I'm pretty happy about it. So before we start, I want to thank our newest Patreon donor, Dan, uh, not Dan Watkins, it's a different Dan. And thanks, Dan. We really appreciate it. If anyone else wants to support us with a monthly donation, uh, just visit patreon.com slash discord pod. Anyway, our host this week is Prague John McFerrin. What album are you taking us through today, John? This week, we will be doing not one, but two albums by the band Yes. <gasps> two albums? Yeah. <gasps> the Yes album from 1971. And Drama from 1980. What's your rationale for picking two albums, John? So I want to start with the question of why we're talking about Yes in the first place. And the real question to ask is not why do I want to talk about Yes. The question is how did I have the restraint to wait until my third episode as host to talk about Yes? Seriously? Yeah. I'm very proud of myself. See, Yes is not quite my favorite band. And they're not necessarily my favorite band to fall under the umbrella of progressive rock. But as I will describe later, I am a fan of Yes more than I am a fan of any other band. Nowadays, Yes is no longer quite the critical punching bag that it once was. The band made the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2017, and the list of famous musicians who openly admit to enjoying the band and its best albums is pretty long nowadays. Nonetheless, I still believe the band is often treated as something unapproachable by quote-unquote normal music listeners to a degree that is not supported by the bulk of their material. Their first and best drummer, Bill Bruford, famously referred to Yes as a trumped-up pop group, and I believe that that is the proper way to approach them. 
Yes found ways to add new layers of complexity and invention from album to album, but they rarely sacrificed the need to entertain and rarely engaged in complexity for its own sake. I would argue that they were simultaneously one of the least accessible normal bands of their era and one of the most accessible weird bands of their era, and I find their general approach extremely appealing. Now, as to why I chose these two albums, while they certainly made worthwhile albums outside of this period, Yes is primarily defined by the albums made when Steve Howe served as the band's guitarist from 1971 to 1980. The Yes album from 1971 and Drama from 1980 mark the respective beginning and end of this era. And I would argue that the latter was deliberately modeled after the former, making a comparison between the two worthwhile. These albums also each came in the midst of significant lineup changes. And it's interesting to consider why the former launched the band's career in earnest, while the latter led to the temporary end of the band, before it reappeared years later in a new form. And finally, each of these two albums presents the band as challenging, yet oddly accessible. And while the Yes album is an excellent album for novices to the band, while Drama is more for the established fan, together they provide an interesting insight into some of what makes the band so effective. And before we move on, I also want to know why we're covering two albums in the first place. It's our 25th episode, and we're trying out an experiment for the 25s. Uh, we're going to try to do two albums as a compare and contrast sort of thing. And if it works out, we'll keep doing it. Uh, we have some other ideas, but no, none of them are Use Your Illusion 1 oh. and 2. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Unless I'm Phil off wants the podcast. To. I'm just waiting for my uh, Baby One More Time slash In the Wake of Poseidon episode, which uh, oh, we're wow. doing that, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, John, what's your personal history with Yes. So I first started listening to Yes in the summer of 1998, after I, had, after I had graduated from high school. I had a budding interest in prog rock, and I had discovered the music review site run by Mark Prindle, who, among other things, recommended many Yes albums highly. Per his suggestion, I started with the album Fragile. My first listen to the album largely passed me by, but I still remember that my main initial impression of the album came upon first hearing the bass line of the album opener Roundabout, which prompted me to think, oh, so this is where Primus came from. few months, the album became a favorite of mine, and I was hungry for more. From there, I proceeded to buy all of their albums, good and bad, as fast as I could, and my interest in them quickly reached a level that went beyond even my high school obsession with the Moody Blues. What? Yeah. It was not enough for me to simply hear all of their officially recorded studio and live releases. I wanted to hear their solo material, good or bad, and I wanted to hear as many live bootlegs as I could. More than that, I was absolutely fascinated with the history of the band. As I will get to later, the history and evolution of Yes is primarily a function of the band's near comical lack of sentimentality and a willingness to replace anybody, no matter how central and important they may seem to the band. And from the start, I have taken great enjoyment in the preposterous soap opera that constitutes the history of Yes and its ever-shifting lineups and coalitions. Now, one more thing regarding personal history. 
I have maintained and slowly written for a music review site of my own since 1999. And Yes was the first artist for whom I created any content. While Yes is not my very favorite artist I have written about, my still-growing Yes page is the page that most resembles a fan page in the traditional sense, both in the length of the individual reviews and in the scope of what is covered, from bootlegs to all sorts of, of obscure solo and side projects. This page is truly a labor of fanaticism and love. So, Dave, you're our guest. Uh, so why don't you go second? Uh, what's your personal history with Yes, uh, besides writing a book in part about them? Uh, yes, are actually the first progressive band I think I, I got into because uh, uh, I was on Mark Prindle's site, like many of us, and I liked Metallica. That was the first band I kind of got introduced to in a, in a mainstream, this is on MTV way. Uh, he, Mark recommended Yes, the, and I, I the place I went to, if I recall, was Jeremiah's Records, which was a Delaware store that specialized in one, like, old cast-off cassettes and two bootlegs. So the Yes albums were the cast-off cassettes for, like, $2. And I I bought, uh, I think I first bought Fragile, because that was the 10 on Mark Prindle's site. And the montage to think of here is, you know, end of 2001, or the Venture Brothers episode that parodies 2001, or... Uh, 2010 the sequel to 2000 well you know just like any any situation where somebody's blown away by all the information coming at them i remember listening to fragile and being like oh man like all the stuff i was liking about metallica this is this is this originated it it's more melodic and it's it's better composed so i was super into fragile bought everything kind of i kind of like from the middle out because that that was the i whatever tape was cheapest i would buy and i got to the expensive ones with um 90125, which which we're not going to talk about here, uh, and was into them before I was into anything else progressive, and they were really my introduction. And even when I was writing the book, um, they were not the most easy band to talk to in terms of the individual members, but they were the band that tied a lot of stuff together. Yep. Uh, as I wrote the book. Okay, Phil, how about you? And I get the feeling I'm going to hear Mark Prindle's name again. Oh yes, uh, him and George Starriston. Oh hell yeah! So when I was growing up, like. I grew up in a very anti-Yes household. Like, for whatever reason, my dad just loathes the music of Yes. Like, he would use them as a punching bag pretty much constantly and talk about how they were the worst band ever. Like, and for a long time when I was growing up, I just kind of believed him because, you know, he's my dad. And then, like, one day, like, I was listening to some Yes songs on the radio. I'm like, you know, I think I really like this band. So... I kind of Get out. so I surreptitiously like snuck around to get myself a copy of the Yes album because that was my like teen rebellion, like sneaking around to buy like Yes albums. <laughs> um, did you have to bring them home in brown paper bags? No, but I did like hide them in my coat, like you know. So my bad. Like, what are you listening to? Oh, nothing. <gasps> like Anita sneaking in bookends and almost famous. <laughs> So I remember I got the Yes album and I put it in like and I thought it was just, you know, incredibly fantastic. I was like blown away from like the beginning of like Yours is No Disgrace, like all the way to the end of the album. And, you know, then I'd been reading about this stuff on the Mark Brindle site and the George Starriston site. And I eventually just started, you know, sneaking around and, you know, like getting all the Yes albums I possibly could, which I eventually did. Eventually, I like, you know 
stopped hiding my love of yes from my dad. And he made fun of me. But, you know, eh, by this point, like there's there's worse things I could have turned out than like a hardcore yes fan. But like my, my love for the band never really abated over the years. Like they weren't like the first progressive rock band I got into. That was Jethro Tull. But like they're one of the ones that like have stuck with me the most just because they're so consistently good at writing interesting music. And even though they haven't done a lot of like great stuff like lately, I still like follow like all of like the soap opera drama of like the crazy stuff going on with this band. Like it's pretty fun constantly because it's like it's like following the intrigues of the of the Elizabethan court or something. Yes. Like that. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, Benoit David has angered the monarch. Oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> so. But yeah, there's just a band that I've continued to love over the years. So I'm pretty happy we're getting to talk about them here because they are a band I am not at the level of John, but I am borderline obsessed with them. So Amanda, how about you? Well, Yes is a band that I like but don't love. And for a long time, I thought I didn't even like them. Uh, but don't worry, I am here to participate genuinely this time. It's not going to be like the Todd Rundgren episode where I just sat around being mean the whole time. Hmm. Uh, but when I was growing up, my mom is a fan of Yes and had that the best of collection highlights. And I heard them a fair amount on the radio and always kind of thought they were mildly annoying at best until I was 19 years old in 2000 and saw Almost Famous in the theater. And there's a scene where William is trying to talk his way past the bouncer to get backstage at the Black Sabbath concert. I could quote this whole scene from memory, but I won't do this to you guys. And at first you can hear snippets of Jethro Tull's teacher whenever the door opens. And then, you know, Stillwater shows up. He, you know, demonstrates how much he loves them. They sneak him in with them. And as soon as he gets through the door, the music has changed to your move right from the beginning, which we're going to hear, you know, later in this episode. And I heard that and thought, huh, I like this. That's new. And then I thought about it and realized I liked Roundabout, too. And then it all just kind of snowballed from there. As for myself, uh, Yes are another band I got into via my parents, though they've lapsed in their fandom because, quote, they have too many long songs, according to my dad. Uh, yeah, I saw them in concert once in 2001 with my dad. I think that was uh, the, the one with the symphony. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, it was great, actually. And once in 2002 with my whole family and my aunt, uh, they played their classic eco disco anthem. Don't kill the whale. Dig it, dig it. And a bunch of their less accessible, longer songs like Awaken. Uh, and that was officially the day Prague died for my parents. 
I got into the band myself through my parents' used copy of Close to the Edge, which I think they never listened to. But I remember like one rainy afternoon on during spring break, I think, uh, just like listening to the title track for the first time and just being amazed that it all fit together so well and it was all just so catchy. But I assume John's going to talk about it later. And I also I also had the compilation highlights, the very best of yes. And I expanded my yes knowledge by associating with these punks. We mentioned Mark Prindle's record review several times, and we were all kind of in the general orbit of that site. And what made me kind of move beyond just your move and roundabout was all you guys all the time talking about how excellent Yes was. And I thought, well, 20,000 music nerds can't be wrong. I definitely would not have listened to Going for the One if I didn't read these sites that we all hung out on. Yeah. Well, I remember there was a day where like I was going through and reviewing Yes for like the old WRC site I wrote for Music Junkies Anonymous. Rest oh yeah, I wrote for that one too. Um, and there was a day where I think like three different people were uploading yes reviews the same day just as a general coincidence because everybody was like that obsessed with yes. Like that's how big a deal the music of yes was around that community. Yeah, I think the REM and Radiohead pages were pretty packed too. Uh, that, that site is archived on Oo cities or something. I don't know. Yeah. You can find it on the web archive. You can find it on archive.org as well. Keep in mind that the reviews are written by 17 year olds. Yeah. Like find my like embarrassing high school scribbles. Yeah. I'm not telling anybody where my reviews are. I don't want them to ever see the light of day again. I'm more worried when I read my old review. I'm like, this is, this is pretty good. This is like better than I write now. <laughs> Occasionally just like I would know how to imitate like a Rolling Stone style review just well enough where I was like, oh, those words are all in order and there's no, because you, you learn different cliches in political writing than you do in writing about music. And so they seem kind of fresh, but yeah, no, nobody look up these old reviews. Just pretend that we didn't talk about this. I always liked yours though, Dave, you oh, were one know. of the few of us who wrote like you knew what you were doing. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. Look that. I think my style at the time was just like literally as I reviewed listening to the album over and over and over again on a cassette. Um, so maybe that's what I'm missing <laughs> these days is once it all turned to like easily accessible streaming music, I lost my touch. Well, we're bringing your touch back, Dave. Excellent. Yeah. All right, John, why don't you tell us about Yes Themselves and their twisted history? For starters, it's a good thing that the period of the band's history most relevant to this episode ends around 1980. Otherwise, this segment could last a good 30 minutes. Topics like Yes West, Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe, the Union debacle, Yes featuring Anderson, Rabin, and Wakeman, and the time that a Yes keyboard has bit a security guard in the neck will have to wait for another time. Did they hire a vampire? <laughs> Yes formed in 1968 with the following lineup. John Anderson on vocals, Peter Banks on guitar, Chris Squire on bass guitar, Bill Bruford on percussion, and Tony Kay on keyboards. This iteration of the band was not so much a progressive rock band as it was a psychedelic jazz pop rock band with hints of prog dropped in here and there. 
The band's self-titled 1969 debut is a delightful listen and had a strong critical reception, prompting the British music magazine Melody Maker to cite them, along with Led Zeppelin, as the two new bands most likely to succeed. Sparkling trees of silver foam Cast shadows soft in winter home Swaying branches breaking sound Lonely forest trembling ground Masquerading leaves of blue Run circles round the morning their 1970 follow-up album, Time in a Word, is an otherwise decent sophomore effort, crippled by some of the most awkward orchestral arrangements ever heard on a rock album. And disagreements over the band's direction led to Anderson and Squire firing Banks soon after its completion. The band's new guitarist was one Steve Howe, most recently of a band called Bodast, and whose most notable output to that point was playing guitar on My White Bicycle, a single from the band Tomorrow, which would later become a highlight of the Nuggets 2 box set. skills as a guitarist will be discussed at length as we cover the two featured albums of this episode. Suffice it to say that he fit in with the band instantly. After the tour for the Yes album of 1971, the band made the decision to fire Tony Kay, largely because Kay only wanted to play piano and Hammond organ, while the band wanted him to make greater use of Mellotron and Minimoog synthesizers. In his place, the band brought on a man whom one could never accuse of using too few varieties of keyboards. Kay's replacement was Rick Wakeman, most recently of a band called The Straubs, and who had established a name for himself as England's most sought-after session keyboardist. For instance, he plays the piano part in Life on Mars by David Bowie. The ensuing album, the late 1971 release Fragile, was a commercial and critical smash, largely due to the success of Roundabout as a single, but also because of deeper cuts such as South Side of the Sky and Heart of the Sunrise, later featured prominently in the 1998 Vincent Gallo film Buffalo 66. Bowied by the success of Fragile, the band became tighter and yet more ambitious for the 1972 follow-up Close to the Edge, which lasts for 38 minutes and contains only three tracks, the shortest of which lasts nine minutes. The album's breakthrough work is the 19-minute title track that takes up the whole first side, a free-form electric acid jazz rock piece crossed with ambient music and with a tinge of reggae, built around a structure that integrates aspects of pop and classical forms together. remains a fan favorite and received mostly positive critical notices, but it also prompted Bill Bruford to leave before the tour, on the grounds that he didn't believe the band could top itself. Bruford proceeded to join the newest iteration of King Crimson and eventually established himself as one of the greatest drummers of all time, but that is a story for another day. 
For the ensuing tour, the band brought in Alan White, most famous to that point for serving as the tour drummer for John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band and for contributing drums to the song Imagine. While on tour in Japan, Anderson read a book called Autobiography of a Yogi that alerted him to the Shastras, an ancient collection of Hindu scriptures. Anderson and Howe then made the executive decision that the band's next album, Tales from Topographic Oceans, would consist of four LP side-length tracks that each would focus on a particular section of these scriptures. I personally consider the album a triumph, if somewhat uneven, but the album made the band a target for derision in a way that it had not yet been. Rick Wakeman notoriously disliked the album, despite it containing some of his best work, and he disliked performing it, culminating in an infamous onstage incident involving chicken curry. See the show notes for details. After the tour, Wakeman left the band to pursue less pretentious projects, such as an album about Keen Arthur that was eventually performed on ice. After Wakeman left, the band replaced him with Patrick Moraz, formerly of a band called Refugee and later of the Moody Blues. The band's next album, Relayer, released in 1974, saw Yes return to the single-album three-track model of Close to the Edge, but with significant dabbling in jazz fusion along the lines of the Mahavishnu Orchestra, or Return to Forever. The album is highlighted by The Gates of Delirium, a 22-minute piece loosely based on the Battle of Borodino section from Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, and which remains my favorite thing that any rock band has ever done. The band went to Switzerland in 1976 to record new material together, but the others soon realized they were tired of Moraz and they fired him, replacing him with a session musician named Rick Wakeman. The resulting album, 1977's Going for the One, is best known as the one featuring a naked guy's butt on the cover, but more importantly, it features the band returning to a more traditionally song-based approach. The album has a whopping five tracks, and while the closer, Awaken, is 15 minutes, the others are of much more manageable lengths. The band's next release, the album Tormato from 1978, has some strong material, but on the whole, it is a mess. The band ended up trying to produce itself, and the end result sounds like a band at war with itself. It often sounds like an attempt at free jazz over very simple pop songs. The songs here also focus on oddly dopey topics by Yes Standards. The album's lead single, for instance, was a disco-influenced song about why it's bad to hunt whales. The ensuing tour, which doubled as the band's 10th anniversary tour, was mostly a successful one, but it would mark the end of this version of the band. 
The band attempted to record a new album, but Anderson and Wakeman wanted to make the sound lighter while the rest of the band wanted to go heavier. Ultimately, Anderson and Wakeman left the group, assuming that this would mean the end of the band, since no sane group would try to replace them. Enter the Buggles. The Buggles, consisting of vocalist and bassist Trevor Horn and keyboardist Jeff Downs, had already gained a measure of fame thanks to the excellent 1979 new wave album, The Age of Plastic, and its most famous track, Video Killed the Radio Star. By 1980, both Yes, who had kept the departures of Anderson and Wakeman a secret, and The Buggles were managed by the same person, a man named Brian Lane. The Buggles had begun work on a new song called We Can Fly From Here that they thought would work well if performed by Yes. And they were thrilled when they had the chance to meet with Chris Squire and offer him the song. Much to their surprise, Squire asked the Buggles to join Yes. And it is this lineup of Horn, Downs, Howe, Squire, and White that recorded drama. As we will discuss, the album itself is mostly successful. The ensuing live tours, however, were not, especially in the UK. The other band members were unwilling to lower the key of the band's older material in order to accommodate Horn having a different vocal range from Anderson. And while the US audiences were generally willing to give Horn and Downs a chance, the UK fans were largely unforgiving. After the tour, the band fired Lane, and in early 1981, the announcement came out that Yes had officially disbanded. This would last a whopping two years, but that's for another time. (laughs) Good job, John. The whole like not changing the key of their songs for like is it's like such one of a the most move. yes it's it's one of the most yes stories. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes like, stories like one word. Yes. Like you're going to perform the songs this way, but I can't. Well, you're gonna learn. That yeah. is too damn bad. Yeah. Yeah, and I forgot to note that I'm also very much here for the Buggles. Uh, I love the Age of Plastic, and actually, our co-host Will is eventually planning on hosting an episode on it. Uh, Anyway, okay, we're going to get to our two albums, but first we're going to take a quick break. Hi, everybody. This is producer Mike DeFabio, and my friends here at Discord and Rhyme were kind enough to allow me a moment to dedicate this episode to my Uncle Bill Peterson, who passed away just a few months ago. That's him playing bass in the background there, and you might be familiar with his work if you've ever listened to Hex or the Tombstones. I picked this episode in particular because he liked Yes a lot, and I heard him bust out the riff to Tempest Fugit at least once while warming up. Anyway, he was a super cool guy and a terrific bass player, and he will be missed very, very much. So with that, let's get back to the show. And we're back. Let's get to the albums. John, why don't you let us know how this is all going to progress? So each of these albums contains six tracks, and we will alternate between albums as we work through the episode. Beyond the number of tracks, the two albums are structured in similar ways, with each track on drama fitting a category roughly analogous to the corresponding track on the Yes album. And these categories will be described as we work through the albums. And finally, in the show notes, I will be recommending an officially released live version or otherwise alternate version of each track. And as much as Spotify can accommodate me, these recommendations will be included in a Spotify playlist that will accompany the release of the episode. That it will. Thanks for plugging that for us, John. Um, so let's get to the first track on the Yes album. It starts with Yours is No Disgrace. Yeah. 
Caesar's palace, morning glory, silly human race. Silly human race. On a sailing ship to nowhere, leaving any place. If the summer changed to winter, yours is no disgrace. We are some cool people at yeah. this podcast. <laughs> I've embraced my freak flag. And John, before we start, whenever we whenever we sing along with songs, I just want to thank Mike, who does an excellent job mixing us, which doesn't happen automatically, let me tell you. <laughs> so the Yes album and drama each begin with a roughly 10-minute epic, each with a small number of unique vocal melody ideas that get presented in different variations and are surrounded by instrumental parts full of energy and flair. After a long and dramatic buildup in which Howe and Squire each get notable solo sections that are nonetheless fully integrated into the overall sense of the music, the vocal melody emerges as a simple three vocal chant over a droning chord, with the chant moving up and down in tandem with the droning chord. This vocal melody serves as a vehicle for Anderson to spill out lines like, Shining flying purple wolfhounds, show me where you are, which may seem on the surface like raving nonsense, but nonetheless work in the context of the whole. This song establishes a regular feature of 70s Yes material, in that the vocals themselves are best consumed as an additional instrument, rather than in a more traditional form. The vocal melody is presented in several different contexts, eventually becoming a sing-songy ditty over a jaunty acoustic part, before returning to its initial form. The music similarly presents itself as a series of variations on a handful of themes, both in the portions with vocals and the portions without. The appeal of the instrumental parts comes as much from the excellent production as from the music itself. Examples include Howe's wah-wah parts jumping from channel to channel in a hard, jarring way, or when the whole band overloads from one channel to another like a ship tipping back and forth in a storm. how at the end the sound seems to ascend and vanish into space. Now truth be told, I don't love this track in this form as much as many Yes fans do. It is my least favorite of the four extended tracks on the album, and I become more aware of the stretching of the themes and the incessant repetition in the studio version than I do in most live versions. Nonetheless, I still enjoy it plenty, and it makes for a solid start to the album and to the band's prime period. What always strikes me whenever I listen to the first track of the Yes album is just like the the amplification of Chris Squire's bass, uh, which, I mean, Yes continued to exist without Chris Squire in them, which I have, I have some issues with, but just like I, I, I can't think of somebody who could come with an example of another, certainly at this point, another bassist who just convinced the band to let um, his instrument be so dominant. Yeah. And just like when, when this song stays catchy and earthbound and doesn't fly into space, it's because there's just this extremely hooky rock section. Uh, I, I like the combination. I remember first listening to this. Uh, and this was, I think, the third maybe Yes album I listened to. Uh, first listened to this, 
I wasn't quite there yet on John, John Anderson, but there's just like so much melody being thrown in your face uh, on this and such was like such rock posture uh, that, that I liked it. And it also, I kind of have a, a strange memory uh, where I, it's very easy for me to forget the details of things. I remember facts and I remember song numbers and titles and things, but I kind of will forget what part comes in at when. And it, it, this is a pattern of yes song, but I want to get repetitive later. Uh, but, but all these, all of these songs surprise me. Uh, I kind of know that I'm waiting for everything to drop out and for there to be, uh, a John Anderson harmony with himself, but this is, this is complicated in all the right ways where I kind of like get lost in it each time. Yeah. I, I agree about like Chris Squire's bass. Like the thing that really jumps out at me here is just how prominent the bass is. And it really kind of makes the music, I think like. When I think of this song, like, I guess the first thing I think of is just that kind of, you know, driving opening riff, which is just a really good way to open the album. And the second thing I think of is like Chris Squire's like, you know, kind of throbbing bass under the whole thing, because like he really ties this together and takes this, you know, art rock song and actually makes it like kind of rock. Like, I think Mm -hmm. like without his bass, they'd really lose something here. Like this song's excellent. I love it. I mean, and I've mentioned earlier, like the Yes album was my first Yes album that I got, and this was the first song on it, and I loved it instantly, and I still love it. And I've heard numerous live versions of it, and I still think it's one of the best songs the band ever did. My take on this song and a lot of this album are just, man, poor Tony K. Yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> he had no idea what he'd gotten himself into. Yeah, by the time this album came out, it was clear that he was just in a band with three virtuosos, and he's just kind of going... <laughs> <laughs> like with block chords and stuff. I mean, I don't want to. Ma- I don't want to diss him. He's not bad by any means. He was just clearly in the wrong band by this point. Uh, but it seems kind of hard to say in yes in general for what it's worth. Yep. Like I, I kind of like his like you know more basic playing in a way. Like when Rick Wakeman joined on the next album, and like he was you know obviously super flashy because he's Rick Wakeman. Like Tony K just kind of like holding down chords on like the Hammond organ or whatever. Like kind of holds it together and kind of ties it into like kind of a more traditional rock sound as opposed to like when Wakeman came and kind of took them off into the Wakeman zone. The Wakeman zone. For what it's worth, this album is the favorite Yes album of of Tony Banks of Genesis, which actually makes a lot Mm -hmm. of sense. That makes so much Uh, sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I don't want to I don't want to seem like I'm hating on his playing on this album. It's just in fact on Fragile when Wakeman is on there, like that's kind of when it became like four virtuosos kind of just doing their own thing at the same time. Uh, But yeah, it's just I just kind of feel for him like uh, I don't know. He must have been feeling some serious imposter syndrome. Yeah, Tony K. Like I like him, but like he probably did not need to be on like close to the edge. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like that would have not ended well. Amanda, how about you? Well, I, I kind of had to get reacquainted with Yes when I was preparing to do this episode. I listened to them a fair amount in my 20s, but I, I've been out of my 20s for some time. So so for a year, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the amount of time. Anyhow, um, I remember when I first heard this and now when I got it back out again, it took me a little bit to warm up to this song, but now I like it a whole lot. I think the very beginning, even though I understand what they're doing, where the the drums and guitar are playing in unison, it it always kind of sounds a little amateurish to me. But they gradually build it up. And then as soon as the synth kicks in, you know, we're all good. It's great after that. I think it develops very well. And it's interesting to me the whole way through. Uh, The only part where I have a problem with it and only when I'm listening on headphones is not quite five minutes in where they just go wild with the panning. 
They do overdo it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and it, yeah. G- it gives me a headache if I'm mm. listening on headphones. This album is very stereo. Yeah, I appreciate that. The first time I got good headphones, we listened to it. I, I It worked on me, and yeah, it's been less, more monotonous since then. There was one shining moment when I realized, oh, if it's not like a Walkman with like this, the headphones that come in the box of the Walkman, this is kind of impressive. <laughs> but without yeah, that, I've actually got my first pair of really good ones now too, and it's I was amazed at what a difference it makes. Yeah, yeah. And the the shining flying purple wolfhound. That's a that's a Vietnam reference, right? Yep. That's like one of the the name of the twenty seventh Infantry Regiment. They were nicknamed the wolfhounds, and I, I I'm aware of that, but I prefer to. F- you know, conveniently ignore that and just assume it's nonsense because it's much more fun to me that way. Well, the thing in Close to the Edge about a season which will call you from the depths of your disgrace, I think that is much more just nonsense. (laughs) And rearrange your liver to the solid mental grace. Yeah, sorry, I didn't get to that When I first started listening to Yes, I learned real fast that if you're going to enjoy them, you have to get over the idea that lyrics should mean something. Lyrics are sound. Yeah, yeah, John Anderson is great, though. Yeah, I'm sure they mean something to John Anderson. Well, Dave, you talked about this in your book a little bit, didn't you, where they treated the lyrics as just something for the vocals to do. They did. Like, John Anderson took them quite seriously. Um, and he really was. I mean, he, he was he was a real hippie. In a way. They got, everyone except Rick Waite, once he joined the band, was fairly committed to this, this lifestyle. But he really was. Anderson had some... Uh, deep feelings about the state of the world, the end of mankind, the Vietnam War, and for the rest of the band, it was like, yeah, you know, go have fun with that. <laughs> like they, they were, they, the band was not that politi- that political. It just, it just, John was like shaping shaping words that they saw it fit the music. Um, no one, it wasn't. You'd get a lot of collaboration in what he was singing about. Uh, and but I mean, he kind of is the only lyricist until we get later in the band's history. Well, the rest of the band was trying to progress rock. So That's true. <laughs> anyway, let's progress this episode. <laughs> so uh, let's get in our time machines and go to 1980. Uh, and let's start with the first track on drama, Machine Messiah. sudden it's yes yeah i love that shift it's so good (laughs) run down a street where the glass shows that summer has gone 
Hey, it's Trevor Horn, the man behind Tattoo. <laughs> Presenting the place of the dawn. All of them standing in line. All of them waiting for time. From time the great healer, the machine messiah is born. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, John, we can't play the whole thing. I know, I know. The album opener for Drama, Machine Messiah, is a 10-minute epic based around some of the heaviest music Yes ever wrote. When listening to this after Tormato, what immediately jumps out is just how much stronger of a presence the guitars, bass, and drums have here than on that album. As on Yours is No Disgrace, the vocals enter here only after a long, dramatic instrumental introduction. And as on Yours is No Disgrace... The vocal parts involve a small number of individual melody ideas presented in different contexts of mood and instrumental style. The overall mood is dark and majestic, yet with an unmistakable sci-fi tinge. And largely because of when I first heard this, I've never been able to separate this song from the 1999 film The Matrix. And not just because the song title describes Keanu Reeves' character in the film. Spoiler. The instrumental passages of the song fascinate me especially as they careen from atmospheric textures characteristic of some of the better moments on the Age of Plastic to more intricate passages that show the band not losing a step with Downs, who shows that he had been a prog keyboardist in waiting all along, for better or worse. As an example, in one of the more majestic passages of the song, Downs plays an excerpt from the fifth movement of Symphony for Organ No. 5 by the French composer Charles-Marie Widor. In another portion that some may find noodly, but I find wonderful, Downs and Squire trade licks back and forth that Squire actually found very difficult to play correctly, before Howe barges in and rips the scene to shreds with the same licks as he locks in with the others, followed by Howe and Downs dragging the music down into the depths of the song's opening riff. Where the end of Yours is No Disgrace had the band ascending into space, presumably to become one with the universe, the end of Machine Messiah sounds like the destruction of a civilization done in by its addiction to electricity. Yeah, this one is kind of jarring, but it, it, it's funny to me that it has actually nothing to do with uh, Horn and Downs. Like, it's just that the hard rock intro is just so much more sludgy than I usually expect from Yes. Like, it's almost like Sabbath or something. Oh, yeah. Like, so Drama is actually one of the last Yes albums I got because for a very long time, people were really dismissive of this album. Yep, I, think, I was too. I think just because, like, I think a lot of it's because of the lack of Anderson and Wakeman and because it's like, oh, no, it's the Buggles. Like, I have a reissue of this album on CD <laughs> where there's a picture of the band on the inside cover and it just says, oh, no, over it. Or, uh-oh, I believe. <laughs> yeah. And it's a hilarious picture. Like, so wow. I put this album in and like that riff started and like within like Within three or four minutes, I was just thinking, what the hell is wrong with everybody? This is awesome. <laughs> I've always been, you know, a fan of kind of sludgy, like heavy metal stuff, like in the first place. And like, I thought that opening riff was just like badass. And then, you know, as it, you know, becomes your typical lighter, like, you know, yes, fair. Like, I thought they did it extremely well. I think all the parts of it work. I really kind of like the like acoustic bits that show up throughout it. Yep. Where they're singing about the machine messiah. Um, I like the I like the triplets in those parts. Like yes, songs don't usually really gallop like that. Yeah, yeah, but it doesn't but like, sound really out of place. But like I feel like 
this is interesting because I don't feel like Anderson would have been on board with this. No, like it's way too kind of like heavy and dark for like the kind of way that Anderson normally is. So it kind of required him to be out of the picture for like something like this to really work, I think. And as much as I like Anderson, like if they had to get rid of him to like result in like stuff like this getting recorded, then it was probably a good move. Yep. Yeah, I I didn't even think about that until until you said it, just that. Other versions of Yes with Anderson have, have different tone, but no, nothing this close to hard rock. And they don't really go there again. I mean, it's pretty soon after this album, um, like immediately after this album, that Steve Howe goes to Asia. It was the heat of the moment. Tell if it was and so there, there are like there's some Asia DNA that I listen that I hear when I listen to parts of the drama like like this track uh and also jeff downs i mean the there's a nice uh synchronicity between downs and uh downs and tone decay because neither is is a virtuoso yep uh they both rely on big splattery block chords and just like letting everyone play over them but yeah this this album i had the same thing no one maybe there's somebody by accident who like buys drama first and hears it first Generally, this is if you're rediscovering. Yes, this is one of the last things that you go to. And I remember, I remember the same feeling of, of picking it up and saying, oh, "This, this kind of rules." I'm, I'm, when is this album going to get bad? <laughs> I remember having that opinion for each track. Yeah, and being not to spoil it, but it, it doesn't get bad. Well, you know, there are moments that are less amazing. Yeah, this song is cool. Yeah. I really, really like how it starts off as this brand new, comparatively really heavy band that you never heard before. And then partway in, it turns into yes. It it reminds me of the part in Band on the Run where the horns finish up yes. and then the acoustic guitar comes in. That that moment makes me smile every single time I hear it. It's one of my favorite little bits of music ever. That is a great comparison. I love it. It actually just occurred to me right now when we were listening to the clip. I thought, oh, that's why that sounds so familiar and why I like it so much. It's really, really good. Now, in talking about the song's instrumental parts, I cannot pass by the chance to mention a description of the song's climatic guitar solo in one of the most hilarious listicles I've ever read. In 2004, the online music criticism site Pitchfork wrote an article, long since deleted but preserved because the internet forgets nothing, listing the top 50 worst guitar solos of the millennium. This list has its share of boomer radio staples on it, from Led Zeppelin's Dazed and Confused to Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb to Leonard Skinner's Freebird, but it also has some more obscure inclusions, such as Frank Zappa's Willie the Pimp. At number 28 is Machine Messiah, and the text is worth reading in full. Yes, anyone? Please, please, no. This prog rock abomination was probably shipped straight to the 99-cent discount bins. Even hardcore Yes fans balked at this one, I think. This most crass example of British science rock sounds as brittle and uninviting as ever. Here, Howe displays his turgid classical metal style over frigid, abrupt time signatures and chord changes made by a lot of fusty Brits too technically accomplished for their own good. Of course... 
Howe's also responsible for that triad intro to Roundabout, the one that every music store guitarist feels compelled to add to their litany of over-recycled licks. This is rock guitar completely stripped of its sexuality. Can you imagine f***ing to this? I couldn't before. Is that a rhetorical question? Because like, yeah, not with that attitude. (laughs) (laughs) I'm more of a sound chaser guy. (laughs) I I remember back when that came out. I was in college, and I read that, and I read it, I read it again and again, just laughing harder every time. Like at that ludicrous conclusion. (laughs) I'm glad we're bringing it back. Like I feel like not enough people remember that list. It's available. Yes, this list is great. This brought me great joy in my life. I don't want to like disparage the list as entertainment. Like almost everything on that list, like is a like actually very good, and b like hilariously mean. Like we will get a link to like the Internet Wayback Machine like version of like this article in the show notes because like. Dear God, read this list. My favorite thing about that actually is how it's the the solos of the millennium. Like they went back and listened to all the guitar solos that were released in 1342 to compare them all. I, I'm <laughs> sure they took down Demoche somewhere <laughs> in there. So Richard Thompson of uh, Fairport Convention and solo fame was approached. I'm glad you bring this up. Yeah. Yes, please talk about this. <laughs> was um, approached by Playboy magazine to list like his top ten favorite songs of the millennium, and everybody else that they like approached was just obviously picking songs since like the birth of the rock era. But Richard Thompson is Richard Thompson, <laughs> so he actually did <laughs> pick his top ten songs of the millennium. <laughs> Like dating back to like the 1100s. I love it. Uh, I believe that Playboy did not end up uh, running his list, but it did prompt him to start the 1000 Years of Popular Music concert tour. (laughs) I think he would open with Summer is a coming in, uh, which I mostly know is the song from The Wicker Man. But he has a much, much more pleasant reading on that song. All right, let's go back to the Yes album. (laughs) This is fun. Uh, Okay, with track two, Clap. For an instruction to the audience, and not for a venereal disease, Clap is an acoustic instrumental that Steve Howe performed in his first concert with the band. This track, like its drama counterpart, serves as a brief palate cleanser between longer epics, focusing only on a subset of the band. It's upbeat and playful, and it's very far from a simple show-off exercise. It's a legit song without words 
full of drama and verve. And the way it crashes into its quiet finish always amuses me. Steve did surprisingly few of these instrumentals in his time with Yes, though he did do many in his solo career and would sometimes incorporate them into Yes live shows, but he started at a peak. I guess depending on the edition of the Yes album you get, sometimes it actually is printed as The Clap on like the back cover, which is not which is correct. Wrong. Yeah. Um, which uh, definitely, like the original copy of the Yes album I had definitely listed it as The Clap. But I think like current editions have corrected it to clap, which is like that's like one of the most like unfortunate usages of the word the getting added <laughs> yeah. to something because like the word the completely changes the meaning of this. Mm-hmm. And they're playing with fire because this is an era when songs were writing a lot like bands were writing a lot of VD songs yeah. or groupie sex songs. So it's, yeah. it's like reasonable to assume, oh, well, yes, just wrote one of the yet another this genre of uh, songs about diseases you get from having sex with people. And they had to the know in the 70s. they had to know that people were going to read it that way. So I'm willing to believe that it's a deliberate double entendre. I think that's true. I also I just was checking Spotify and Spotify listed as the clap. So because none, no one under 40 will buy albums anymore. That's how every generation. Well, until the end of the world. But so the next generation <laughs> is going to. The lyric of the song is with the definite article, uh, but you know maybe they don't know what venereal disease is. Maybe we'll cure that by the by the time people listen to this album in the future, or we'll all be slipper men. So yeah, is that even current slang anymore? I don't think it is. I think it stopped being slang in like the late seventies so too, because there were just there were so many songs about it. People just got tired of calling it that. This song really comes alive. Like, well, I'm being repetitive. It comes alive when you see it in concert. Just just like when you see Yes fans getting super pumped for Steve Howe to come out and play a jaunty tune. Uh, it really does. It's like a nice aperitif on the album and, and live, but you know, not much more than that. I will say I was a naive enough, like teenager, like that when I got my copy of the yes album, I did not know what the clap was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks to this song and Emerson Lake and Palmer, I've learned that prog rock hoedown is a subgenre that I enjoy quite a lot. Yep. <laughs> Me too. I would like more. Okay, let's go back to drama. This is a short song, so we're just going to play the entire thing. It's called White Car. Prague John led his friends further into the twisted hallways of the drama (laughs) album. But first, he had to solve three riddles. Okay, I'm done. (laughs) It just just sounds like an adventure game or something. It does. Definitely. 1995. Like an album that you install with 17 CDs. Like yeah. something out of Kate's Quest. Game, rather. And that Weezer yeah. video. Car is a tiny part of the drama experience in terms of length, yet it is impossible for me to imagine the drama experience without it, much as I can't imagine the Yes album without Clap. 
The track is based around downs on the Fairlight CMI and white on drums, with a light smattering of acoustic guitar, and with Horn singing a short poem inspired by seeing Gary Newman driving a car given to him by his record company. It isn't quite as interesting of a put-down of Newman as, say, Teenage Wildlife from David Bowie's Scary Monsters album was, but it's interesting in its own way. Now, there's not too much else to say about this track in its own right, so I'll mention something that's actually pertinent to our guest, Dave. Yes. Back in 2017, Dave posted a photo on Twitter of himself reclining on a couch with a white dog awkwardly sitting itself on his shoulder and neck, and he asked Twitter to come up with a caption. My entry was the following. I see a man with a white dog. (laughs) He sits at home listening to Prague. (laughs) Sits on his chair and dog sits on his head. Man with a white dog. That's all. John, I love that we have listeners who are here specifically to hear you do that. <laughs> Man, that was that was good. I I I didn't sing it to myself when you responded initially. Uh, that dog in particular is a dog named Rocket, who, given the choice, would always sit like in the in the like in between a wall and your shoulder. Which I don't know why. That's what what he, what he liked to do. Um, and with the song itself, why did everyone hate Gary Newman so much? Someone to hate. I guess so. I mean, this is this is the the, the full Buggles experience uh, get coming to you through this song. I mean, th- this is the the part of the album that I feel sounds the least like it. Like, yes, it's good. It's really just like maybe just the the, the this wasn't the first time the, the Fairlight appeared. I think on on Yes album, but like you really feel the shift into eighty synthesizers uh, and the kind of tinier. I mean, like, the, I keep thinking of the computer game feel, but the the tinier feel than the band was used to. So I, I, I never loved this track. Uh, I, I think I forgot its existence, despite <laughs> despite the, the ballad about the dog. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, this is probably what people th- this is probably what people thought. Although live, I'm told the song's really good. Uh, I have no experience of that. This is not one of the ones that the band has resurrected yeah, since they no, they did they did resurrect it and they resurrected it. When they started doing drama in full, only when they did it in full. I mean, I only first, when they did it in yeah, full. I saw them like take some drama songs, and it was not this one. Uh, right. But they relearned this one. I mean, I'm sure it's fun for Jeff Downs. So let's move on to the third track of the Yes album. The name of that track is Starship Trooper. Would you like to know more? Yes, I'm from Buenos Aires, and I say kill them all. <laughs> oh, for crying out loud! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this makes me happy. I couldn't resist. Okay, this is the actual Starship Trooper. And if you didn't get that, you're too young. But you should still listen to this podcast. Rate us on iTunes. Much better.
This track and its counterpart on drama are both anthemic epics with extended codas, clearly partitioned off from the rest of the song. The difference between the two is that while drama's entry, Does It Really Happen, is an enjoyable and well-crafted inclusion to that album, Starship Trooper is generally regarded as one of the best Yes tracks ever, and rightly so. This track, at about nine and a half minutes, marks the first time that Yes would officially designate different sections of a given piece with their own individual section names. They would do the same thing on the album's next track, I've Seen All Good People, and at various points in the future as well. The opening portion, Life Seeker, is a showcase for just how smart this band was. And I don't mean smart in the pejorative sense that often tends to happen when that term is used in the context of rock music. The repeated alternation between the muscular bottom bottom chords and the delicate falling guitar line, followed by the repeated alternation between those chords and Anderson's vocals, that is smart. The way they end that section on an ecstatic high note and launch into perfect transition material to get to the Speak to Me of Summer section, that is smart. The simultaneous melodic grace and epic power of that section, that is smart. The way they make their way back to the original musical ideas, and how when they wrap up the section in a sudden jarring end that's the total opposite of the graceful exit of the first time through, that is smart. Regarding lyrics, they're actually nowhere as nebulous as one might typically associate with Anderson. They're simply about seeking to understand God better. So in a way, you could think of these lyrics as simply being his version of something from George Harrison's All Things Must Pass album. Actually, John, it's interesting that you mentioned All Things Must Pass because I've been thinking that this first section reminds me a lot of some of the songs on there, especially Beware of Darkness. Not that they really sound all that similar. It's just a a similar use of tension and resolution. Yep. That repeats over and over through the whole, well, this whole section and that whole song. It's extremely well done. And Anderson, this whole vocal performance is really lovely. And he knows exactly how to use his voice to fit in with those chords. I just want to comment on uh, what you said about like how this band is smart, because I think it's kind of worth hinting at a little bit, like we're talking about a little bit rather that like usually when people describe a band as smart, Usually what they mean is that the band is like very self-conscious, like they're trying to like, you know, kind of hit you on the head with like, look how clever we are. Yes, make very early XTC. Yes. But like, yes, like make like really make some really clever decisions and like do some really smart stuff to emphasize certain things and like help things build. But they never come across like they're trying to like show off how smart they are. They're like show offy in the sense that they're like excellent musicians and they're very good at arranging things, but it never feels like they're just beating you on the head and saying, listen to how smart we are, which is nice. Yeah. I, I mean, this song, I think we'll talk more about it with the worm section, but it, it's amazing that it works this well because this was the first, uh, the first thing that Steve Howe literally brought to the band that they, you know, they, they lost Peter Banks. They replaced him with, with Powell in this, in this early seventies Voltron period, they just keep adding like, you know, superior components to the band and replacing the weak ones. Uh, and he brought this song that I've, I've listened to the one that he adapted, uh, for the band, the one, the one that he brought out, but it's, it's, it's a bit like the first King Crimson album, first song on it also begins with the song that was just pieces uh, thrown together. That sounds a little bit more herky jerky, and this this really this really flows and also has that probably the best job on this on this record of of going between the super 
positive ethereal Anderson stuff, and the really it does not take much for a yes to sound ominous when they want to because you're kind of lulled by how pretty everything is. So when, when they get to those sections, like we're gonna get to, get to them, like the worm part really really rules in a way that nothing yes it had this iteration of yes had done yet. I mean they under Peter Banks they were kind of a little more jangly and rocky, but never that ominous. Uh, and they, they, they show that off in this in this track. the first section of the song primarily came from the mind of Anderson, the second section, titled Disillusion, primarily came from the mind of Squire, despite being dominated here by Howe's nimble acoustic work. This portion is actually the cannibalized bridge of an earlier song called For Everyone, written during the Peter Banks era, and never given a proper studio recording. It only exists in a single BBC recording of middling sound quality, but I'll be damned if it isn't one of the best things to come out of the Peter Banks era. I've been I've been so jazzed to get this into an episode. Eventually, the acoustic section comes to an end with Anderson holding out the last sound of the word follow for what seems like an eternity. As the track's opening music returns, the band sends wordless harmonies soaring into the skies 
before the speak to me of summer part returns. It's so effortlessly inspired and performed that it almost seems unfair. Yeah, that that BBC clip shows like I've seen a lot of people really like, you know, credit a lot of like the leap forward on this album to how and he definitely contributes a lot. But I think like even if they hadn't gotten how if they'd stuck with, you know, Peter Banks, like I think the band was clearly progressing like they were going to be making some interesting music regardless. Like I'm very glad how showed up because he added a huge amount to the band. But I don't think we want to overstate that, like the importance of how here, because I think, you know, the band was moving forward pretty rapidly, even without him. Now, although Banks's work after, so Banks died before I wrote the book. Uh, he left, he left a memoir. If it's good and like bitter in a way that I think yeah. might, might've been shaped away by a different editor. He actually was pretty, pretty adventurous uh, when he left. Yes. When he started this band flash and, really did, never thought he was his, his contributions were taken seriously enough. So that's some evidence here that, yeah, he, he, he was not as, not as talented as how in important ways, but he kind of overcompensated with pretty good at melody. So I'm glad, I'm glad that's reflected in this out the first album without him. If you, if you want to hear like Peter Banks, like being very bitter, like read the liner notes to like the beyond and before uh, BBC recordings compilation. Yep. Where he's, He's clearly so bitter about like what happened in Yes. He actually even had like a, a long rant about being left uh, left out of the Union tour, yep. which was terrible. I mean, he's like talking about being left out of like Pearl Harbor for music. <laughs> he, just, he really enjoyed being in Yes and thought he was like he was cut out of the history and did not. And I, I get it because um, everything he left in there, I mean, the first two albums and the, the pieces that survived were all very good. They definitely like work to cut him out. I mean, he's not on the cover of the U.S. release of Time in a Word, even though he plays on it. Yeah. section is an extended coda entitled Worm, with a U and an umlaut, and it is an instrumental that Howe wrote but never recorded while with Bodest. The first half of the section is built around Howe playing a single descending chord sequence in seeming perpetuity, but this is no ambient piece. This is a sci-fi battle anthem, the soundtrack to the march of the titular warriors as they prepare to fight who knows what. And the slowly building menace from Kay's organ and Squire's sparse bass notes is something to behold. Once the tension feels like it's reached a breaking point, Howe takes the lead. Yet even as he flashes his various tricks, you always feel like he's holding something back. And the song retains its tension even in the simultaneous act of releasing it. If you can get to the end of this track and not feel the least bit of admiration for it, then you should give up listening to Yes right now, because they're really not for you. So that definitely wasn't the case the first time I heard it, uh, though I've grown to love Worm a lot. I actually did first hear about Starship Trooper because of the Starship Troopers movie, because around when it came out, I heard an interview with John Anderson on um, Greg Kinn's morning San Jose radio show. Greg Kinn of Jeopardy and the Breakup Song fame. Wow. I guess that's more I lost on Jeopardy fame by this point. 
they talked about the song in relation to the movie. So when I, I got the highlights comp, I was excited to hear it, and I was pretty into the first two sections, but then I initially completely rejected the worm section as music as a 14-year-old. <laughs> Because it was just the same thing over and over again, even though it's clearly awesome. I, I just remember listening to it on the bus home from school and the song just not registering at all. It was a very distinctive prog moment for me. Um, anyway, I eventually grew to love it and the general concept of a repetitive dirge, uh, which is fortunate because I, li- I eventually listened to a lot of The Fall. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time I heard this, like... Again, I was like really into like that 90s alternative sound. So when the worm section like started up, I thought this is a real thought I had in my, you know, teenage brain. Hey, this sounds like that song The Twist Inside. You know, that album cut from side B of Everclear's Sparkle and Fade LP. <laughs> it really does. Like it's a very similar chord sequence except like obviously Worm is way better <laughs> because it's by Yes and not Everclear. <laughs> Oh, well, we got a random Everclear song on the playlist. Yep. But yeah, this is great. Like, I love stuff that, like, kind of builds tension like this. And this, you know, does it extremely well. Like, I used to just, like, rewind this section and just play it over and over again outside of the rest of Starship Trooper sometime because I just thought it did it so well. Yeah, I, I love this section a whole lot, too. And it, part of the reason is because on the surface, it really doesn't seem like it's doing all that much. But it's really super interesting. And even just that descending chord sequence is a cool chord sequence. Those are some nifty intervals he came up with there. It's a very flangy song, which I appreciate, too. It's just mm, like, yeah. There is like great melodic use being done of what can be the silliest guitar effect. Uh, and yeah, the, I didn't even make the 90s rock connection, but I totally hear it now. I mean, there's, there, there, this is something that a lot of bands with less, te- with, like, less technique adopted. I'm not sure if they're ripping off Yes, but it's a sound I associate with like... Uh, slightly more rudimentary guitarists and hearing it apply to this. It's so fun. I've, I've rarely listened to flanging and been like, damn, this rules. And we talk about flange a lot in the uh, Wizard of True Star Todd Rungren episode, which Dave is also on. So I'm, all y'all should check it out. I guess I did talk a lot about flanging that time, too. I mean, just every time you need, you need a flange correspondent, please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Add that to your bio. The only effects that matters. Yeah. So, so Starship Trooper is the longest marathon session of the album. Let's go back to Drama's track three. Does it really happen? <laughs> Not yet, John. Oh. There it is.
experience, I know this song can seem bewildering at first, simply because it's not clear what it's trying to be. Is this prog? Is this new wave? Is this rock? Is this dance pop? The answer, of course, is that it's all of these and none of these. And it's a song that could only come from this particular group of musicians at this particular time. During its ill-fated tours, the band chose to open with this. And if hearing Horn struggle to hit the high notes in Yours is No Disgrace might have soured the audience towards him and the band, I at least like to think that this one would have initially put everyone in a favorable mood. The star of the song is Squire, who lays down a muscular bass line throughout that's based much more on rhythm than on hitting a lot of different notes. And White's drums lay down a tight groove that still has enough rhythmic trickiness to pass the prog sniff test. In a precursor to what would happen when they went off to join Asia, Howe's guitars somewhat disappear into Downs' keyboards, but the effect is gritty and sleazy instead of overly glossy as would happen later. The vocal parts revive the approach of working more as harmonized chants than as typical vocal melodies, and they work as one more interesting rhythmic element in a song full of interesting rhythmic elements. For me, the best part of the song starts around the 240 mark, when the driving bass line and the accompanying music of the introduction return. Horn and Squire begin to sing a much more sparse and atmospheric set of lyrics than typical to this point, and the mix between their singing and the backing parts slowly growing in intensity makes for a charged feeling unlike anything else I can think of. This section also features my favorite Downs keyboard playing on the album. More than anywhere else on the album, here he really carved a niche for himself that made him, at least at the time, every bit as essential of a yes keyboardist as his predecessors had been. Now finally, the song has a coda, essentially a chance to hear Squire's great bass line for just a little bit more. And while it certainly can't compare to Worm, it's a fine excuse to extend the song out for another minute or so, especially as Down slowly gets more into the act. For reasons I'll go into in the show notes, the coda works better on vinyl and in the original CD pressing than on the current CD pressing, but it's still a lot of fun either way. This is my favorite on this album. Uh, and it's it's not even close. I absolutely love this. The intersection between Prague and New Wave is really interesting and fun. Mm-hmm. And Rush did it too around this time. And those are the Rush songs I like. I ordinarily can't stand Rush. But Signals, which came out in 1982, is a pretty good album, especially Subdivisions. I, that's, I think, their best example of that. Planning song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this song sounds really Rushy to me, and I'm sure they must have been influenced by it. But I'm I'm really bad at putting particular albums into historical context. Was anybody else really mixing up those genres at this point, or is this the first? Uh, Rush's Permanent Waves came out in 1980, and that definitely okay. it's not as keyboardy. Oh yeah, that's right. That's a yeah. As um as a Signals, which is the one that has Subdivision on it. Yeah. But uh, if you want to go deeper and less successful, um, Gentle Giant released their Civilian album. In 1980. I think that's a good album, yeah. but yeah. everyone else forgot it. It's not in print anymore. Uh, you can get it, I think, as part of a box set of all of their Chrysalis albums, but I'm getting oh, off track here. Right. But right. I mean, I think further evidence for this is um, I was playing this album tonight while I was making dinner, and my husband, who hates prog rock but really loves Rush, rated this song a not hate. <laughs> Which is about as high as it gets for prog rock with him. It does remind me of of some of the the rush that comes later, especially because like Steve Howell's good in this, but he's not given like a big solo to show off and and blow things up in. It is more of a this is more of Jeff Downs and and Trevor Horn 
uh, playing around. But that, that like I can't think of many. This kind of stomping beat that brings you into the song also sounds like I'm, I'm not trying to like run the whole yes catalog in my head. It's pretty unique in in the way they write. They don't usually use this allow this much blank space to onto into the music. Uh, and it really works. Yeah. I, I, I'm really discovering new stuff. I like about the, about the, about the record. I listened to it on the, on the, in the run up to this too, but I had been boiling down the album to just the last song, but no, this is, this is probably a better fusion of every, every part of the band that were like, no one's really dominant. Uh, they scale back some of the, some of the, some of the flashiness and it's, it's just like a really good new wave song, but longer <laughs> and like with, with more, more ambition. Yeah, there are a couple of really successful fusions of the Buggles and Yes on this album, like just uh, half and half. There were the, just a perfect synthesis. And yeah, the aforementioned last track is one of them. And this is the first one. It's really groovy and creative. It goes in a bunch of neat directions. And it, uh, as of lately, it's gotten stuck in my head all the time. This is the stuck in my head winner of this set. So this isn't my favorite song on this album, which we'll get to later. I think everybody's strongly hinting at the song that everybody here really likes. But this is the song that most makes me like kind of sad for what might have been, because I think like, yes, really hit on an interesting sound here. And unfortunately, like because of, you know, various yes related, you know, drama, LOL, um, <laughs> like the band broke up. And then when they reunited, they were more of a normal pop band and they never really went down these avenues again. Like, and I would have really liked to have heard more stuff that like more fully explored this sound. But I guess, you know, in the words of um, King Crimson, I will have to be happy with what I have to be happy with. Good pull. Thank you. Uh, there was one other point I wanted to make about this song, which is that Trevor Horn does an excellent John Anderson impersonation uh, with the way he yep, enunciates he and kind of punches up mm -hmm. certain syllables and their voices sound similar enough to where I would not be the least bit surprised if more casual Yes fans didn't even notice the difference. It honestly, to me, it reminded me a little bit of Genesis with The Trick of the Tail, where the first time I listened to that, I was halfway through the album before I realized it was Phil Collins singing, and <laughs> not Peter Gabriel. So I think I've heard the story, John, you might have said this, that there were some people who didn't realize until they showed up at the concert tour, and there that was this right. whole new guy standing up there on the stage. <laughs> And some people were kind and some people were not. He did not imitate the John Anderson uh, style of dress, which I think no one imitates. <laughs> and he would just he would just like show up wearing the Trevor Horn like jacket and, and, and slacks. So it was like, wait a minute. This guy looks like he could get like he could like uh, walk out of a bank and not out of a commune. Something's well, wrong. Hang on. This guy. But looks yeah. Normal. And he couldn't quite. Admit it. Yeah. He looked extremely <laughs> normal in a disturbing way. He wasn't wearing the goggles and like uh, clipping shears <laughs> from the Art of Noise video. So you probably heard the next song and not just from that ridiculous cold open that we put together, <laughs> probably from the radio as well. This is this is I've seen all good people. And this is the first part. Your move. I've seen all good people turn their heads each day. So satisfied I'm on my way. I've seen all good people turn their heads each day So satisfied I'm on my way I love this guitar so much. Take a straight and stronger course to the corner 
You know, yes is hard for me to sing along with because Anderson's voice is higher than mine. It probably still is. Because it's time, it's time, it's time, and your time and this news is captured for the queen to use. Side two of each album begins with a lengthy experimental rocker based heavily around incessant repetition of a single mantra-like phrase. On the Yes album, this phrase is, I've seen all good people turn their heads each day, so satisfied I'm on my way. After singing this phrase twice, the song, well, moves into its first designated section, called Your Move. This part was released as a single, and it's easy to see why. It's about three and a half minutes, it's memorable, it's pretty, and the lyrical imagery actually makes sense without having to get a doctorate in Andersonology. At its core... Your move is about the age-old topic of men and women trying to understand each other, framed in the metaphor of a chess game. Of course, Anderson also somewhat extends his focus beyond simple relationships and looks to a hope of universal peace and love. In doing this, he alludes to two John Lennon songs. In one line, he sings, Send That Instant Karma to Me, and later on, in the backing vocals, we can clearly hear the band sing, in a very serious way, All We Are Saying Is Give Peace a Chance. Near the end of the section, the organ becomes very prominent until it's the last thing we hear after the vocals fade. See, he should have uh, changed up the mood a little bit by breaking into working class hero. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is this is a great song. Um, I'm sure everybody else is going to has a lot to say about this one because, you know, it's a real famous song that I've heard on the radio a lot. Um I just want to say a couple, just two things I want to say about it is one, like when I was growing up, this I mentioned at the top of the show that like my dad hated Yes. This song was like ground zero of his hatred. He hated this <laughs> song so much to the point that I really had to hide the fact that I actually liked it because I was embarrassed that he was going to make fun of me. Uh, and secondly, more related to the actual music here, like, yes, you know, have a reputation somewhat well-deserved for being real show-offy. I like how restrained the drums are in this. Like, Bruford doesn't, like, you know, feel the need to add, like, a million jazzy fills to this. Like, it's a really simple song, and he just adds, like, you know, a single note every now and then to kind of, you know, give it a little bit more rhythm, and it works perfectly. Like, if he had added more to it, it would have overwhelmed the song. What this reminds me of is the the King Crimson instrumental trio, mm. where he doesn't play, and he's credited uh, in the liner notes with admirable restraint. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's one of the reasons I like Bruford so much as a drummer in general. He's amazing and can play, you know, basically anything, but he also knows when not to play. He doesn't have to be showing off at every possible conceivable moment, but he knows when he should be showing off, and that's a great trait. So as I said before, this is the song that made me realize I like Yes. This part is just gorgeous. And it's mostly Steve Howe's guitar. It's stunning. I mean, after they finish the first, you know, the, the two little acapella lines when the acoustic guitar comes in, it's 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 irresistible. I don't understand how anybody could not just fall in love with that. Um, and it's also... Okay, I often feel pretty silly describing things in synesthesia terms because I always worry I'm going to come off like I'm just making up stupid shit trying to sound cool. No, you should you should do it, Amanda. I I want listeners 
who are synesthetes and ones who maybe didn't realize they were synesthetes okay. to, to like talk to us at Discord Pod on Twitter if you're a synesthete. We've had a couple of people talk to us. Yeah, and it, this is actually new to me too. Like this is something that's always happened, but it never occurred to me it was unusual or interesting until Rich brought it up. Uh, but anyhow, one of the reasons that I like the Yes album better than Drama is that the colors are brighter. And that acoustic guitar in your move is a very, very bright yellow, and it's a little bit shiny. It's almost like gold. So that makes the song just extra pretty to me. Uh, one other thing I appreciate, which I'm not sure is deliberate, I think there's a reference to Through the Looking Glass and what Alice found there in the line, Make the White Queen Run So Fast. Uh, Through the Looking Glass is also framed as a huge chess game on acid. And in one scene, the Red Queen tells Alice... Now here you see it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as that. Now, I know that's the wrong color queen, but it really seems to be describing that same kind of concept. And, you know, the Red Queen's race, as it's called, is often used to illustrate ideas related to, like, evolutionary biology and relativity and the predestination paradox and all these other highbrow concepts that Lewis Carroll and or Anderson and Squire may or may not have had in mind. But if it is an Alice reference, that also fits with the John Lennon homage, since he was a huge Lewis Carroll fan. I might just be full of crap here. I don't know, but I thought it was interesting. So Owner of a Lonely Heart is the most played Yes song. I believe that this actually beats Roundabout as the second. I don't know what the, the latest was, but I remember when I last time I looked it up. Um, I first realized, <laughs> honestly, how popular Yes was because it was so alien to a lot of pop culture when I was growing up, uh, both from the Buffalo 66, uh, Vince Gallo's use, which was mentioned above, and then also a Sarah Silverman sketch in which she, it, which she incorporates, I've seen all good people. So I was like, Oh, this is iconic, isn't it? Yes. And for that, I, I, I don't, um, I love the first half and the second Rocky half, even though it's really fun in concert. Uh, I've, I've kind of fallen out of love in that. My favorite part of this is actually, this gig- this part when Tony K kind of crashes in with this g- gigantic organ sound after after the first section, just the interplay. I never, I really never get tired of the interplay between Steve Howe's kind of pastoral side and gigantic or- organ noises and block chords. And the the part when it gets kind of the boppy, repetitive, do 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 it's it's like catchy and good, but it doesn't move me as much as the first part. And so it's kind of sacrilege. Like I, I will make the case for Yes's like ninetieth most popular song over this one, but it's like it, it's good, but it didn't like woo me as much as um, as much as other stuff on this record did. But I think this is another good example of why like Wakeman's a better player, but yeah. like K is I think who should be playing on this track, correct? Yeah. Because like Wakeman yeah. would would definitely be like showing off more, whereas he'd be redundant. Yeah. Like, whereas Kay, like, I say, like, Bruford's an amazing drummer, but also can show restraint. Rick Wakeman is not particularly well known for his restraint. Nope. I don't think he could have sat here and just played, like, block chords. I think he would have been going bonkers on the keyboards in some way. He played it normally in concerts because I, it was already written and that's how it was. But I am glad Tony Kay was here to lay down the foundation, like, in this simple way, because it benefits the song. And I found an interesting cover of this song. Uh, I'm going to play it right now. Take a straight and stronger course To the corner of your life 
Make the white queen run so fast. And by interesting, I mean who the artist is. I feel like I should know. That sounds familiar. So that was Robert Downey Jr. What? Oh. <laughs> yep. He recorded this in 2004, uh, just shortly after. I, I guess they were still like kind of during the wilderness years for him after the singing detective movie and still well before Iron Man. But yeah, he released an album and it had a cover of Your Move on it. That is Fantastic. a bad cover. section, simply called All Good People, has nothing to do with the first section, and yet the idea of having one without the other just seems unnatural. And incidentally, I have heard performances where they paired your move with something else. And it sounds interesting, but very weird. In this section, the band simply sings the phrase over and over, on top of a country boogie rock backing track, and it is a blast. Eventually, the other instruments fade, and all that remains is Kay's organ playing the underlying chord sequence and descending after each iteration as the phrase is repeated in tandem and the effect is amazing. So I like this, but I'm actually kind of with Dave in that like, I would say like the all good people section of I've seen all good people is probably my least favorite part of the album, which doesn't mean it's bad because I like everything on this album quite a bit, but it's the part of this album that probably moves me the least. Yeah, same here. Though I like the uh, I like the transition between the between the songs when when they play it live. It, like there's a, they do a big drum fill, or at least they did the times I saw them. Uh, whereas like it kind of just like stops cold here, which I always thought was kind of weird and abrupt. Now, does anybody know is that line supposed to mean anything, or is it just a nonsense phrase that fit with the melody line they'd written? This is yes, Amanda. What do you yeah. think? <laughs> I took it as them making fun of John Lennon, but then, like, I think I was just thinking in terms of, like, how Todd Rundgren made fun of John Lennon, but, and forgot that most people loved John Lennon <laughs> uh, in the early 70s. Speaking of, to bring it back to Robert Downey Jr., on that album where he covers your move, he, he, he combines it with uh, Give Peace a Chance. Uh, so he had, you know, his opinions on John Lennon now. And he definitely was like, take, oh, I should take these lyrics literally uh, and apply them to all other songs that are about, about peace. I'm not sure if Yes meant it that way. Don't buy this album, by the way. The Robert Downey Jr. album is not very good. You don't say. I'm shocked. <laughs> I went through a phase of like looking for, not not collecting and filling my shelf with, but like looking for celebrity albums because they're all pretty bad. Scarlett Johansson has an album of Tom Waits covers yes. pro- what? produced yeah. by the uh, by the guy from TV on the radio, and it is basically unlistenable, but like, you know, unlistenable in, in, in a fun way. Well, Tom Waits is already unlistenable. Yeah, well, we can debate that, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I kind of spoiled my thoughts on this section of the song. It's like fun and rocky, but it's like, it's just after so much majesty on the rest of the album, I never liked this part quite as much. Well, let's, let's go to the next song then. Uh, so let's go to track four on drama. This is Into the Lens. Now, what is he again? We'll find out again and again. <laughs>
There is no escape. Tie it down. Now you see too late. Lovers, they will never wait. I am a camera. Oh, there you yeah, go. I remember now. <laughs> <laughs> I originally hated this song because I couldn't get beyond the incessant I am a camera chorus, which I considered a low point of the band's career. Nowadays, though, I'm inclined to consider it fascinating and possibly the most underrated song they ever did. It's less a coherent song and more an interesting jumble of recurring ideas, mixed and matched in unpredictable ways. But what an interesting jumble of recurring ideas. The song is a buggle song at heart, yet in this version, it's the contributions from the legacy members of the band that I find most intriguing. Squire and White often lock on with downs to create passages based on peculiar rhythms and harmonies more than on melody, but ultimately I consider Howe the real star of the track. This is a showcase of the full span of his abilities on non-acoustic guitar. In particular, I'm fascinated by his use of a Fender console steel guitar in the introduction, as he gets a huge sweeping tone from it that makes the track sound absolutely enormous. As for the sun parts, I enjoy all of them, and I once again find it interesting how they can take basic elements and present them in such different settings of mood and intensity. My favorite part of the song, which I want to single out, is also its proggiest. And it's one of the main reasons I think that people who dismiss the album because, ew, the Buggles are out of their minds. Ew. Well, that and the Buggles being awesome. Yeah. Squire locking on with downs for that lightning fast bass and keyboard riff with Howe's guitar chiming in for Menace. Then with Howe joining in on the main riff after the vocals emerge, building into a vocal climax before the band returns to the same music as the introduction, but done with greater intensity is exactly the same sort of careful internal logic that makes Starship Trooper so effective, and it deserves credit as such. Yeah, this is one I, I like, going into it, I knew a lot of people hated it, and I knew a lot of people said, like, the they just say, I am a camera a million times. But this is another one, like, I heard this, it's like, I loved this song the first time I heard it. I thought it was great. Like, I think it's really interestingly constructed. Like John said, it's like, you know, it's a bunch of parts kind of like haphazardly like assembled against each other. It's a bunch of sections that kind of like keep on clicking together in different interesting ways. But like I thought like, you know, the vocals are good, like the melody is interesting. I like I love all the different sections of it. I don't get bored with it in its entire like 10 minute running time because the song is pretty long and you'd think it would, you know, wear on you a little bit like but it really never does it feels like it's a lot shorter than it is at least to me selective memory is weird because uh, like you said i remembered the song is just being dominated by the i am a camera part and just being like this boring flat landscape with just nothing but that but it it has so many little movements it's kind of like this little prog rock opera that just happens to have this really dumb chorus that uh, that you hear over and over again um I, like going back to this, I was kind of dreading this song, and I, it, it's now one of my favorites, honestly. Yeah, the, I think that I am a camera part sticks with me, honestly, just because uh, the Buggles like plagiarized their own material uh, yep. on the on the oh, yeah. album. They just 
have a song called I Am a Camera. Uh, I was going to, yeah, that's going to be, th- that. we're going to have a link to that somewhere in the liner notes. Oh, yeah, which, um, or, or the, the show notes, excuse me. But we actually, can, like, we can the, tell str- the, liner notes. the strings yeah. of this song reminds me, like, of, of, of just how, how much I like that. I like it because there's not a lot to that song except for that repetition. And this, it's, it's, it's this nice little nougat center of, of something much richer. Trevor Horn is not quite, this is, this is a little bit less uh, uh, trying to sound like John Anderson than he usually does. I mean, vocally he does, but the, the, there's a specific sort of moodiness in the way he, the way he writes this, these lyrics and sings this, that, that I, that I dig. Um, but yeah, I can't, I can't get that one buggle song out of my head. So that it just, it leads to this interesting experience where I am flashing back to a kind of mediocre buggle song while being enveloped in a much big, bigger yes song. <laughs> and I always kind of like it for that reason. The one thing I have to poke at is I don't think that that buggle song is mediocre at all. I, th- I like it about as much as the yes song. And Trevor Horn prefers the Buggles version for what? Oh, well, he would. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, of course he would. I will never let you go. If you own a I like the yes version better but like i think this is a good example of like the stuff that yes were producing around like tornado was not very good for the most part but like this is a real like reese's peanut butter cup of a song you got yes in my buggles you got buggles in my yes and it ended up improving both of them <laughs> there's no wrong way i don't know i, I don't know how to i don't even know how to finish that to eat the buggles i don't know Okay, let's move on to track five of the Yes album, Adventure. Oh, which one? Rusty? Dean? Eh? Eh? I'll be quiet. Maybe Jonas Venture Jr.? Once a peaceful man laid his head down by a river Thought about his childhood life and father a forgiver Who couldn't hide away Hide away He controlled the horses with As on the first side of each album, the middle track of each album's second side presents an unusual track that bridges between the other songs, and that was ignored in live performance for a very long time. In context, this feels like a bit of a dud, an odd nod to the jazz rock of the first two albums and filtered through the new lineup's kidneys, but as a standalone track, I kind of dig it. It has a bit of a music hall feel to it, which Yes had never tried before and would never try again. And while I don't think it entirely works, I also don't think it doesn't work, if that makes sense. Kay gets a chance at playing the kind of jazzy piano that I'm sure he wishes he'd been able to play more of on this album. And while it might have been nice if the band hadn't decided to fade the song out just as Howe started to play a guitar solo to balance out the sound, the song also probably would have become tedious if it was longer than 3 minutes and 20 seconds. And thus it's just about what it should be. 
Well, this was the first song on the album that my wife reacted to it all, interestingly. And she compared it to Ben Folds, and that's uh, which I found neat. It's, it is kind of in that sort of like Harry Nilsson vein or like, you know, the late Beatles sort of uh, piano pop, distinct from the other songs. And But I didn't used to think much of it, but just I, now I really, really like it, honestly. And by the way, I realize that my wife is the Maris Crane of this podcast, and that's in her words. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've always dug this one. I always thought it kind of sounded like something off Buffalo Springfield again, which might be intentional because on their previous album, yes, it actually covered the song from Buffalo Springfield again in the form of Every Days. But yeah, it's a nice little, you know, different kind of song. Like, it's kind of just here to, like, break things up a little bit, but on its own, I think, like, you know, if this was in the middle of an album of, like, a bunch of, like, three-minute songs, like, I think it would stand out and be considered not I guess um, would be regarded a little bit more highly than it is like stuck here because um, here it just gets swallowed up by like all the epics around it. But I think it's a pretty nice song that, you know, deserves to be remembered more than it is. Yeah. It kind of sounds like Yes's interpretation of Paul McCartney's granny music, you know, like Martha, my dear and Maxwell's silver hammer only darker. Sure. And I don't yeah, mean that's I darker thinking. as in the, the subject matter, because, you know, Maxwell's Silver Hammer is pretty dark. It's just the the sound of it is more shadowy. And I don't dislike it, but this is the part of the album where I tend to zone out. Yeah, I, I, I like the band showing off that it can write this sort of song. It's it's not it's not like a big standout song, but it is uh, like you've you forget <laughs> in the, in the big image of yes, that they can just knock together. The word dance hall is still, still stuck, uh, stuck in my head from, from before. Uh, but yeah, the, the, it's very transitional. I mean, they, they don't really write another song like this. This is, this is the kind of stuff that they would throw on the first two albums. And it's a little bit of a farewell because you know, after this, we get to another big Epic song and it's kind of, songs of that scale for the next decade this is a little farewell to what they could do it's waving goodbye yeah on their next venture (laughs) okay switching back to drama let's go to track five run through the light kind of policey very much. Yeah, it really is. It's not, yeah, it's not kind of policey. It's absurdly policey. This is a police song. They just didn't know it. Yeah, I forget how much certain bands just kind of dominated the landscape. started its life during the failed 1979 Paris Sessions. And this early version can actually be found among the drama bonus tracks under the title Dancing Through the Light. That early version is hot garbage and helps make the case for why that version of Yes absolutely had to break up. 
But the drama lineup found a way to take the same core musical material and make it interesting. Part of why the song seems oddly different from the material around it is that Squire does not play bass on this track. Instead, Squire plays piano, and Horn plays fretless bass. The stars of the track, for me, are Horn, with his clearest singing on the album as he stretches high in the verses, and White, whose drum strikes dominate the sound and insistently make themselves known, but never in an overbearing way. Now, if I can make one complaint about the version that ultimately made the album, it's that it could probably stand to have a little less in the way of how. Even if I'm sure he felt that the track needed to hit a minimal threshold of himself in order to qualify as legitimately yes. <laughs> His mandolin parts are both lovely and dark, and the ending parts that are played on electric guitar are energetic and anthemic, but there's a little too much of him butting into every crevice of the sound, whether he fit or not. Still, that's a relatively minor complaint, and it's yet another strong track from the band that more people should remember fondly than do. <sighs> Yeah, because I've done the same thing and gone back to the, I think it's the extended CD that came out, I don't know, 2002 or something that you can listen to the demos on. And it it does make you appreciate how they clean this stuff up. Um, this is like a little goof, a little too much on the goofy side for me, especially the the little harmonic that I think I think I hear How doing uh, on, on the guitar. I, I never, I mean, like my music fandom started with listening to entire albums and my brain has been rotted by shuffle like everyone else's. And I generally skip this song. It just never, it's never got its hooks in me the way that the way the song, I, I think I, sometimes I, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm just too, if I need too much stimuli uh, and it, it's, it's only the songs that begin with a gigantic Chris Squire bass explosion <laughs> on this album that keep, that keep me hooked in. But it's it, like they really did clean up something that wasn't working. But I don't, I don't quite love it. I mean, I, I think it's definitely the least of the songs on Drama. I would yeah. say it's probably my least favorite song on either of the two albums. But that's really not a slam because I love both of these albums. Like it kind of like drifts by me most of the time. But it's one of those songs that every time it comes on, I just kind of think, oh yeah, this song, this song's nice. It would definitely be one of the better songs on the Asia album, the self-titled one. Oh, that's definitely true. Oh, yes. It would be in the top three easy. The one thing I do just want to mention really quickly, and I'll go into more detail on this in the show notes, but there's actually a single version of this, and the single version is better. Um, it, it it cleans up a bunch of the things that I the, – the little details that I don't like about the album version are are wiped away, and it basically turns it completely into a buggle song, and it's really cool. I guess I can say a little bit like just the 1979 like Paris sessions that John mentioned, like which were intended to be the follow up to Tormato. Like (laughs) they are so bad, like Tormato was already a mess. And from the sounds of those sessions, like the follow up album was going to be considerably worse. I have a question. What kind of title is Tormato? Like a tornado of tomatoes? I don't get it. Yeah, it's on the cover. Is it really? Yeah, the cover of the album is. I think the tornado. It, it's it's. I think there's a place called Tor in um in Britain. Like that. There's like on the inside of the liner notes, if I recall correctly, there's like a uh, like a topographic map of England, and there's like a thing like showing like a place called Tor. Well, a Tor is a, a kind of elevation, like a type of hill. I don't think there's like maybe one that's what place it is. called I, that. It's maybe, a that, sure. It's it's been years since I looked at the liner notes for tornado. 
but but the point is like on the on the cover is a man like like fricasseeing a uh, a tornado or a tomato not look what look it's done to me it just like slicing up a, a a tomato and i guess it's supposed to look like it's being ripped apart it's everything about the album is kind of dumb so you shouldn't think about it too deeply yeah that is stupid it was originally it was supposed to be so there, there's a, the hill is called yes tour like two different words that's the one yeah. so and and so the image is supposed to be of that and band members have fought for credit over who threw a tomato at at the cover so like they basically turned it into mixed media project for oh, for years rick wakeman claimed i i hated the cover and threw a tomato a tomato at it uh and then other members of the band said no we all <laughs> so like they all they all agree that it was not a, it was not a good cover um I mean, I think like the bigger problems of that album are just the constant funk bass on everything, but uh, not a problem with drama. Drama, they will, will you like in order to get you lulled to this new band's sound. Uh, you got you know a familiar Roger Dean cover, so no tomatoes being thrown anywhere <laughs> on this one. Yeah. Chris Squire gets like the most improved award because he sounds consistently yep. dopey on Tormato versus consistently oh, yeah. badass on drama. <laughs> Yeah. Just dropping the funk bass changed everything. Just adding a little bit of distortion instead of just like, like, like on Don't Kill a Whale. <laughs> well, I'm surprised to hear you say that because didn't we establish before that funk and prog are the same thing? Sometimes, and sometimes <laughs> they shouldn't be. <laughs> I don't think that was quite the point Mike was trying to make. <laughs> okay, are we ready for our last run through the Yes album and drama? Oh, thank goodness, yes. Let's do yeah. it. Well, let's, uh, <laughs> these songs are both about time. Uh, this is Perpetual Change from the Yes album. <laughs> I keep trying to predict what Bill Bruford's going to do, and it's a <laughs> fool's errand. <laughs> It's kind of croonery. Yeah. I see the cold mist in the night. Or that might just be informed by when I saw them live and they performed this. John Anderson was kind of wandering around the stage. Yeah. I watch in every single way. Well, by that point, he, his image was kind of like your uncle singing at a wedding. I loved it. The closing track for each album is an up-tempo number with an instantly grabbing introduction, memorable vocal parts, some of the most iconic instrumental work of their respective albums, and a breathtaking final stretch that makes for an ideal capstone. The stars of the introduction here are Kay, with his giant organ sound, and Bruford, whose tight rhythms locked into Squire's bass make for an effective rhythmic foil before Howe enters and establishes another of the song's main themes. The vocals initially appear in the form of a quiet jazz pop ballad, not unlike something from the band's first album, and as they return through the course of the song, they do so with ever-increasing intensity and grandeur. 
until it feels like they're delivering one of the most important messages in the world, even though they're as cryptic as ever. In terms of instrumental parts, the midsection is one that could intrigue even a prog skeptic. Around the 4.15 mark, the band becomes quiet in support of a jazzy solo from Howe, then gradually gains in intensity until around 5.10, when the band begins playing an ostinato in unison that's simultaneously memorable and completely bonkers. This music gradually shifts away from sharing both channels and into the left channel before the right channel is taken over by the organ-driven music from the introduction and the two exist in polyrhythmic heaven. guitar then enters and clashes with both in a way that sounds lovely rather than clamorous, and this ends with the entrance of a synth that signals that it's time to return to the sun parts. The ending section held down by wordless harmonies over a previously unheard chord sequence, which serves as the foundation for more intriguing how noodling, has always sparked wonder and awe in me, making me think of the grandness of the cosmos and how the universe is so much bigger than I could possibly comprehend. And there is little else in the world of rock music that sparks a similar feeling in me. You don't hear very many prog waltzes, so, you know, that's fun. I'm not anywhere near as moved by this song as John is, but I it's interesting, and that's that's about all I have to say. Like, I don't, like, love it to the extent of John either, because it sounds like John, like, really loves this. I like it more than yours is no disgrace. I do not. I know. I do think it's very good, though. Like, yes, at this period, like, really couldn't do much wrong. Every part of it's interesting. Every part of it's, you know, got something going for it. There's great musicianship. It never stays in one place too long. Like, I don't want to say it's like just a standard great yes song, but that's kind of how I feel about it. It's yes, they're they're firing on all cylinders. They're doing what they do, and they're great. I've always loved this, uh, like the the opening opening theme that they keep repeating through this. Um especially the the plunking Chris Squire like downbeat. Uh I, I I've always I I like instantly loved that when I first heard it and I first listened to the album. I remember I had one friend when I was growing up who was equally interested, at least just in this era of yes. Um and there's not el- there's not a whole lot else to the to the song, but whenever they go back to that theme, always goes into the uh I'm trying to think. So the repetition followed by that rising melody every time works on me. Uh, the rest of the song, the crooning part is is pretty good as their chill sections go. But I don't know. I feel like they all of the 
meandering stuff on this album. They they really do tighten it up with everything they do after this. Like once you get to fragile and close to the edge, there's not as much of a sense of where did this section come from when the songs slow down. Uh, this is the last time I think where the slowness doesn't really go anywhere. But I love that that central melody, that central theme is one of my favorite things in their whole catalog. Uh, I like the part toward the end where the band sort of becomes like just one single unit and plays this really twisty melody, or at least I like it until the entire thing pans into the left channel. Uh, well, they keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was actually, yeah. I noted that down too, because I was wondering if this was ever mixed in quadraphonic. Because that bit around five and a half minutes in, it sounds like it's trying to circle all the way around my head, but it ends up just yeah. parked in my left ear and it makes the whole section sound really off balance. I don't like it. No, that's fair. I'm curious as to how this would sound because um, there's a guy, uh, Stephen Wilson, that uh, for yeah. our listeners, uh, he's uh, the guy yeah. from Porcupine Tree, but he's largely known these days for being a dude who like remixes lots of prog rock albums. And he did remixes of some of the early Yes albums, including the Yes album, which I have not heard. I have I only have like the version of the Yes album that doesn't have the bonus tracks is what I have. So a pretty old version. And I'd be curious to hear like the um, Stephen Wilson version, because he's generally excellent at doing that kind of mixing work. But unfortunately, yeah. I have not heard it. Yeah, I haven't either. I've I've stuck with my 2003, 2004 remasters for a while. I think that'll probably get around to the Steve Wilson ones, but not yet. I like his remix of XTC's Nonsuch a lot. I've only listened to it once there. I've listened to all his XTC remixes. They're all good. I think it's probably the remix that I've been listening to. Whatever it is that's on Spotify has a whole bunch of bonus tracks after it. So was it Wilson that went extra wild with the panning earlier that I was talking about then? Probably not. I'm guessing the version on Spotify, and we can verify this and we'll put it in the show notes, um, it's probably like the 2004 CD edition, because Wilson is usually very tasteful with stuff like that. Okay. Okay, everyone. Time flies when you're having fun. Or as the Romans would say, Tempus Fugit. Hell yeah. <laughs> In the night she would run like a lamp at the breeze at the sight of a mind close beside herself. And the nearer I came, how the country would change. She was using the landscape to hide herself. More in the mind than the body, the feeling of sense at the end of a circular line that is drawn at an angle. I see when I'm with you, the navigate wonders and finally answer to yes. Once read someone comment that this song has nothing memorable on it, which strikes me as insane because to my <laughs> ears, this song is practically exploding with power, energy, and catchiness. Not to denigrate anybody else's musical tastes, but that person is wrong. Yep. This song is one of the best arguments I can think of for the idea that the lines between prog rock and quote unquote regular rock are far more blurred than many would claim. This ambiguity starts immediately, with an introduction initially centered around angry guitar and organ chords in unison as other keyboards enter to help rev it up, before shifting to a passage built around an amazing bass line that's not quite prog rock, not quite hard rock, before giving way to a song that's based around a tweaked ska pattern. Everything about the song works, even the way that the lyrical point of the song is to make the case to the listener in the most forceful possible way that this version of the band is still yes. The final minute 20 or so is especially breathtaking, 
with Assange's energy kicked up another 30% on top of the fireball it had already been to that point, and I'm always left wanting to hear it again when it's finished. Yeah, I love this song. I, I, I rediscovered it, I think, when I saw Yes, when I was researching the book and saw them kind of play, but they, they were doing what they think is now their standard of playing through entire albums, but they played through two classic albums and then said, oh, so we're going to play Tempest Fugit. Uh, I didn't know. I, I forgot the song entirely and then remembered it. And it, it, every part of this is amazing. And this is with the exception of some of the early Peter Banks stuff, like the really clangy beyond it before. This is probably the hardest. Yes. Rock in the traditional sense, in the sense experience that makes you want to headbang. Even when they get a little bit more direct with uh, the next couple albums in the 80s, they don't like kick this much ass. So it's just every part of the song, it never stops. Even the, the slowdown, the, the very Bugglesy part of this is the Trevor Horn and Jeff Downs harmonizing with each other. Downs finds like a, a, a setting on the Fairlight that sounds like a human voice going, yes. And, and Trevor Horn also sings, yes. And... Even that, it like, that can't slow down this momentum. This song rules. And I, I actually have found I can play this to people who think they hate Yes. I tell them the Buggle story. They're a little confused. But, like, every every time, like, they just keep coming back to this this locomotive of of Chris Squire's bass line. And the, when he drops, when he drops the uh, tempo and he's kind of trading licks with Jeff Downs, it's, it's, it's amazing. Like, I don't know why they... It's a nice way to end the album because it makes me sad they didn't experiment a little bit more with this. Until, I guess, they re-recorded one of the songs from this session 30 years later with a different band. But, like, that that's a little bit too much to get into right now. So, like, I don't want to compare this to, like, you know, some of the big epic Yes songs. Like, it's hard to compare this to something like Close to the Edge or The Gates of Delirium. But in terms of, like, song, like, l- normal song length Yes, this is probably my favorite Yes song. It's just so insanely hard rocking. Like, it's got one of my favorite bass lines ever. I love kind of like the new wave ska, like guitar line that comes over it. The thing's just got like an absolutely amazing, like pounding energy to it. Like, I can't imagine like not liking this because to me, it's just so obviously badass. Like, uh, John and Dave summed up what makes it great really well, but. Yeah, like this song is just super spectacular. And it's a shame that it kind of languished in obscurity for a long time because this album was kind of forgotten for a long time. And when uh, John Anderson came back to the band, he basically wouldn't perform anything from the drama years because he didn't want to perform anything from when he wasn't there. I think um, Chris Squire would do like bass solos that incorporated the line from Tempest Fugit in it. But the band basically never played it live until like Anderson was out of the band. So I'm hoping that it starts getting a little bit more due because, like, for my money, this is this is as good as it gets right here. Um, I don't like this song. Wow. <laughs> Sizzling hot takes here. Yeah. So you sent me that comment. <laughs> I actually didn't, but I'm kind of inclined to agree with that guy. I, it, it's. This is one of those things where, well, to begin with, this is just not what I'm looking for from Yes. So there's all, there's a little bit of 
you know, dissonance already. But when it's not actually playing, I can't remember a damn thing about it. I have no idea how it goes, except for something about answer to yes. And while it is playing, it always feels to me like they're just trying too hard. And it just, it doesn't work for me. Wow. As always, I respect your opinion, uh, Amanda, but this, but I'm going to, I'm going to turn in the other direction. I figured you uh, would. Again for mine. (laughs) So one, so one goal I have with this podcast is to boost the signal of songs that need to be more famous. Cause frankly, there are like eight fucking queen songs that you hear everywhere constantly all the time. (laughs) Uh, And I think we need to shift the balance. And the first song on this list is Tempest Fugit. Like, I want to hear Tempest Fugit in the grocery store checkout line. <laughs> I want to hear it as a baseball player's walk-up song. I want to hear it on yes. a lip sync battle. I want to see it used in a <laughs> Kevin James montage. So, listeners, if you like this song, uh, spread the word. Tell all your friends how great Tempest Fugit is. Run to your windows and scream that Tempest Fugit is amazing. Dave, next time you're on MSNBC or something, at the end of the segment, say, like, oh, by the way, Tempest Fugit by Yes is great. I just... I sometimes get to choose my intro and outro music on a podcast, and I, I might request that. I've gotten people to play King Crimson Red before. Now that I can get behind. Yeah, it, but like this is the next level. And it just, it is one of those where you are surprised to learn. Everyone now is disagreeing fiercely with Amanda. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's fine to have another opinion, but like this is one of those you're surprised to mm. learn is not like in the rotation with other, other like cool guitar songs from this. Because this is kind of a, a weird period when new wave has taken over and there's not really heavy guitar rock until like new wave of British heavy metal, uh, a year, about a year later. Uh, so this is like such an orphan song and it, it fits in so, so nicely with like the big kick-ass stuff around, around this period. Yeah. And I don't think it's going to be universally beloved or anything. I just want more people to hear it. Cause I think that yeah. like if, if ELO can become hip, uh, then this song can too. Cause their songs are just as dorky as this one. That's what you need. You need a montage in the next, uh, guardians of the galaxy movie where I don't know, there's a heist or battle or something. There's slow. You, you need that. We need to like get this in front of James Gunn. Now that he's back, there's, there's a way to get this back into the culture. Uh, or like for the first time, get it into the zeitgeist. There's a music video for this, which is one of those. We don't know how, what we're doing. We're just going to shoot the band uh, looking like guys in their late 30s. Um, but like it clearly was never a hit. And I, I feel like that's unjust. This would have worked so well in Baby Driver. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you guys are successful and this does end up reentering pop culture, like I, I won't be mad about it, but I also won't <laughs> care. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll make sure it doesn't get to
Okay, that brings us to the end of those two albums. That was a crazy experiment. Um, so, John, what are your final thoughts on Yes and these two particular albums? So, with the possible exception of the lineup that made Fragile and Close to the Edge, every incarnation of Yes has been flawed in some way. And both of the albums that we cover today have their fair share of flaws from flawed lineups. They each have ideas that either don't work quite as well as intended, or get repeated too often, or don't fit perfectly with the ideas surrounding them. Nonetheless, these albums each work well far more often than they don't, balancing virtuosity with directness and beauty with power, and they each have tracks that demonstrate that when Yes was at the top of its game, few bands could match them. If someone is determined to dislike Yes on the basis of a war of musical values that finished decades ago, then so be it. But I remain convinced that if a person is introduced to the band without preconceptions of whether or not they're supposed to like them, then they will come away enjoying at least some of their material more often than not. The Yes album has long been one of my recommendations as an early entry point to the band. And while drama is a little more niche and a little more for established fans, it builds on the Yes album in interesting ways while carving out its own identity. I recommend both of these albums wholeheartedly. I think John like summed it up pretty well. Like, like I like both of these albums a lot. I probably like them about as much as each other. Like the Yes album is basically, you know, classic prime Yes, not quite at the point where most people would consider their peak, but very close to it and extremely good. And drama being, you know, them kind of trying to reconfigure, like after losing like some key members and it didn't click with the public and it resulted in a band breakup, but it definitely clicked with me. And I think it's an album that's well worth um, rediscovering. I think this is an album that would be interesting to play for people who think they don't like progressive rock or yes, because while it definitely has a lot of progressive rock trappings to it, it's a lot more new wavy and, you know, new wave. That's a lot more hip, right? So, yeah, these are both great. Like these are both, you know, classic prime. Yes, that I would recommend to basically anybody uh, amanda when i was going through these albums getting ready for this um i started wondering more what it is that makes me like yes but not love them and i suspect that whatever it is it's the same factor that makes my husband who as i mentioned before despises prog rock kind of like them <laughs> it's always seemed to me like something is missing from their sound but i can't quite put my finger on what it is so finally i just asked him and he told me it mostly has to do with melody. Like, he is totally not on board for stuff like Tales from Topographic Oceans. But on the Yes album and drama, uh, the band just, it doesn't go too far into the weeds. And the songs all have identifiable structures and melodies. So I think it might have to do with the fact that they often sit in that gray area between prog and pop, although further to the prog side. And they do it very well, and I like it, but it's not my most favorite thing in the whole wide world. And I think for him, even though there's a lot of poppier elements, there's still enough prog to it to where he's never, ever going to love it or even like want to listen to it voluntarily. He just doesn't get mad when I turn it on. As for these two albums specifically, I like them both a lot. Uh, but as I mentioned before, the Yes album is the clear winner of the two. It has a much lighter touch that I prefer. And like I said, the colors are brighter and it's a little more sparkly. And apparently, I am a magpie. <laughs> and uh, and Dave, why don't you uh, why don't you bring us home? I, I like them both a lot. Neither is my favorite Yes album. The Yes album is 
is a really good example of a band entering its its imperial period. It's it's can do no wrong period, like just on the doorstep. It's not quite there yet, uh, but for that kind of album, it has it has some of their best songs, and and then it's still these like kind of ropey sections that they they work out of the music for the next few years. And dramas like just it, it it's the kind of album I really love. And now that there's infinite choice on what you can listen to, I really do gravitate towards experiments that somebody tried once and said, eh, nah, maybe not. Uh, and I mean, this is a, of a piece of, you know, Black Sabbath's Born Again, where they take one one outing with the lead singer of Deep Purple after he's lost his voice and see what they can do. It's flawed. It's not that great. This is actually, there are parts of this album that hang together really well, but it is technically just it, it, obviously it's an experiment that didn't work because they after this album they're on tour um they, the first run of shows is sold out when they add shows they realize the audience does not want to see trevor horn into the place of john anderson and the venues are half empty so this kind of broke this literally did break the band uh and they this format this form never existed again before that re- i mean had they done three or four you know van hagar style albums with with Trevor Horn, I might feel differently, but as this little experiment with all these flaws, I really do. I really does have a, a place for me outsized of how good the, the whole album is. And it has two songs that I just love and listen to in rotation with all the big yes. Classics. Just, frankly, when you love a band for a while, um, you have your favorite songs, but I probably, when I hear roundabout, I, well, I, it doesn't have the same power. I, I go to the hard stuff. I go. I go to. I go to. Doesn't really happen. I go to. Um, I go to Tempest Fuga. So I. I really do. I'm glad the drama got some respect after all. And I don't have much to add to what what you four said uh, already. I just. Uh, I, I just like that we did like a complete end run around Yes's most popular albums, but uh, came up with a couple that represent them so well, like. Uh, yes, album is a really good overview of their sound in general, and drama demonstrates the classic yes thing where the, where you can just like swap out members with like you know say the Buggles and still retain some of that classic yes essence. I would like to add how nice it is for me to be friends with you guys because nobody around here, like where I actually live, likes prog rock at all. I have nobody to nerd out about this with, and that's why I'm going to see King Crimson by myself this fall. So even though Yes isn't my most favorite prog band, this has been super fun. Yay. Yeah, I kind of live in a little bit of a prog vacuum myself. So most of my prog rock discussions are on the Internet. So, so John, what other albums should prospective Yes heads check out? So in a way, I'm actually not the best person to ask for Yes-related recommendations, mainly because the list of Yes albums that I don't consider at least pretty good is very short. And at minimum, I would personally recommend buying every Yes album through 90125 except for Tormato and maybe Time and a Word. As much as I would love to wax poetic about something like the 2001 album Magnification, though, I want to turn my attention to an album that is directly pertinent to what we covered today, as well as some of the hilarious history associated with it. In 2008, after a four-year hiatus, the band's standard lineup intended to reunite for a tour with Rick Wakeman's son Oliver taking his father's place on keyboards. Unexpectedly, John Anderson suffered life-threatening acute respiratory failure, and the band responded by firing him and replacing him with Benoit David, 
the singer for a French-Canadian Yes tribute band that Yes found on YouTube. In 2011, Oliver Wakeman left the band and was replaced by none other than Jeff Downs. And this lineup recorded an album called Fly From Here with none other than Trevor Horn as the producer, making it a semi-sequel to drama. The album's centerpiece is a 24-minute multi-track suite based around We Can Fly From Here, the song that originally brought the drama lineup together, along with some other material that the Buggles had written in the early 80s but had never released. This album is nice and has some high points, but it's difficult to ignore the elephant in the room, that the band had come very close to producing a sequel to drama but hadn't quite pulled off a proper reunion. Then something unexpected happened. In early 2012, Benoit David came down with similar respiratory illness to what prompted Yes to fire John Anderson back in 2008, and he only learned that he had been permanently replaced in the band by a man named John Davison when he read it in a magazine. In 2015, Chris Squire died, and this sense of the band's mortality may have been what prompted Alan White to ask Trevor Horn if he would ever consider recording new vocals for the 2011 Fly From Here album. Horn decided that he may as well, since he had written much of the material for it in the first place. And this ultimately led to the 2018 release of Fly From Here Return Trip, in which David's vocals are completely removed and the album is remixed. And I would note that the original Fly From Here is no longer in print. I consider the band's treatment of Benoit David absolutely despicable on par with Stalin systematically removing anyone from photographs who had crossed him. Wow. Or the Moody Blues cutting out Patrick Mraz from all their pictures. <laughs> yeah. But I'll be damned if the return trip version of Fly From Here, with horns vocals and trimmed down to 21 minutes, isn't one of the best things Yes ever did. If you're a fan of drama, then you owe it to yourself to hunt down Fly From Here return trip because it is just about as good. Nights are cold on this Sit alone, watch the rain Dave, what are your uh, what are your favorite Yes albums? Oh, I'm pre- I'm pretty generic. I have I've learned to love Tales of Topographic Oceans, but like, Woo! Uh, especially once I discovered De La Soul had had sampled it, <laughs> uh, and it, there are just some parts of that that like peeled out of context are extremely funky and surreal. Um, but it's going for the one is the one that I like what, still surprises me the most because I've heard it. I I, I really have never has much fun with an album intro as the first few bars of that were yes yes all of a sudden become a like a a country a country rock band uh like you imagine the animatronic versions of them playing the disney world and then they turn to yes again um so i, I like going for the one and then i cannot deny close to the edge but i yes like over time i've, I've kind of assembled songs from from each era that i really love and I, i've even discovered things about talk that I like. Um, yeah. But I definitely, I cut it off with magnification, maybe even halfway through magnification. 
Uh, I have not been a fan. I've seen yes only in the John Davison era, uh, and good for them for finding somebody who looks and sounds ninety percent like John Anderson. But you know the the yes of old, I think, kind of kind of petered out in two thousand two. Um, but close to the edge still is perfect. Going to the one is 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 weird and experimental and perfect when it works. And those are probably my favorites. Amanda. Uh, I'm pretty predictable. I like Fragile the best. And John recently reminded me that Relayer rules pretty hard, too, so try those. Yeah, I'll jump off that. I second Relayer, which is probably my favorite, uh, or at least it's equal to Close yeah, to the Edge. Uh, it features the Gates of Delirium. Very uh, cool. I, I wouldn't say I read War and Peace so much as I looked at the pages in order, but uh, it seems like Yes did a pretty good job. I love that song. Yep, I would uh, second that uh, or third that like Relayer and Close to the Edge are for my money, the two best Yes albums. You can't go wrong with either of them. Close to the Edge is probably a little bit more accessible. Relayer is a little bit more free jazzy, though it's still like not it's not like you're listening to John Coltrane's Ascension or anything. It's not like that kind of free jazzy. But yeah, both of those are like for me, like the essential you have to hear these yes albums and then you know fragile is the one with roundabout on it it's real great uh going for the one real great um they have some other good albums but those are the ones i would consider like the essentials okay are we done i think we're done wow wow yeah Yeah. that was that was quite a journey thanks for joining us dave no it's I, i i was serious it sounded like banter before but it's like so nice to not focus on my day began with like Elizabeth Warren came to the office. We talked to her and it ended with like this two hour Trump super PAC presentation with, I was sitting next to Sean Spicer, uh, who knows that I've argued with him on, on Twitter and stuff. But we, I was like, Oh, what a weird life I live. And I came back to this. And I felt much better. What's, what's Liz Warren's favorite song on drama. Uh, I didn't even ask. She, although I will say Warren is the only can I cover all these people. And she has by far the best campaign playlist because she she comes on stage to nine to five. That's great. Which is like music, musically and lyrically perfect, especially because like the lyrics are all about a woman who's not appreciated for everything. She ever all the ideas she's come up with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, <laughs> it, it, it's run through the light because she's running. <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, we forgot that joke. Ah. Oh, my God. Uh, well, yeah. like Dave, you didn't ask her what her favorite yes song is. What kind of journalist are you? So next week, after this double dose of prog rock, we're listening to something super easy. Captain Beefheart. It's the 50th anniversary of the captain's perplexing, sprawling 1969 double LP Trout Mask Replica. And Dan is the one among us brave enough to take it on. That's a double LP? Yep. Yep. Four sides. Let's roll credits. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy or stream the Yes album, Drama, and other albums by Yes at your local Sam Goody or just the usual places such as Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and Amazon. And we made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com. Follow Discord and Rhyme on Twitter at discordpod for news and updates. Follow John at Tarkus1980. Follow me at Zonetrope. Follow Amanda at Magnetic Inc. 67. Follow Phil at PA Maddox. And you are probably already following Dave at Dave Weigel, but that's his handle just in case. Visit John's nearly two-decade-old music review archive at johnmcfarrowmusicreviews.org. And as always, I need to warn you, he rates albums in hexadecimal. Yep. <laughs> Editing is by me. And special thanks to Mike DeFabio, the other leading brand, for his production skills, without which we are nothing. Especially because we plopped two albums on his plate this time. Wow, Mike, I'm sorry. Yours is no disgrace. See you next album, and be ever wonderful.